It's scary, right? Because it's like the average American sleeps 6.2 hours. The average American is functioning the same as they would be if they were drunk. Nothing fixes you faster than sleep. I like to simplify sleep hygiene down to two things. These are chemicals in your brain that are promoting your brain to be awake. They're encouraging you to be awake. And there's good evolutionary reasoning for that. The answer to what do you do when you can't fall back asleep? That's the big one. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hi guys, welcome back to the show. I am thrilled to bring you this episode today. Ever since I recorded it, I have just been dying to get it out there. If you have any questions at all about sleep, sleep supplements, how to fix sleep issues, how sleep works, all of the things, this is the episode for you. Dr. Kirk Parsley is honestly the go-to expert on sleep. He's done TED Talks about it. He is just the guy. I know it's a long one, but I honestly could have talked to him for another couple of hours. He just knows that much, and I learned so much, and I think you will as well. He also formulated the amazing sleep supplement, Sleep Remedy, and as we'll explore in this episode, it's all natural, and it works by basically providing the substrates and nutrients necessary for your brain to instigate the sleep state. So it's not a pharmaceutical drug that's going to just knock you out without giving you restful sleep, and yes, we will discuss pharmaceutical sleep aids in this episode, but it really just naturally supports your natural sleep cycle, and I cannot recommend it enough. If you go to sleepremedy.com and use the code MelanieAvalon, you will get 10% off of that. So that is awesome. We'll also be doing an Instagram giveaway for it as well. So stay tuned in the show for details about that. You're also definitely going to want to check out the show notes for today's episode. They'll be at MelanieAvalon.com slash sleep because I'll have the links there for all of the sleep hacks that we discuss in this podcast as well. And this is super appropriate timing. The Melanie Avalon podcast is a Himalaya network show. And if you download the Himalaya app, it's my favorite podcast app ever. It lets you follow all the podcasts that you like, create your own playlist, really just keep everything in one place. If you follow my show in that app, you will get early access 24 hours in advance. And the reason I'm saying it's really appropriate is I just realized yesterday that it has a dark mode, which is super great because as we'll discuss in this episode, light really affects your circadian rhythm and melatonin production. So I just found that dark mode and I will definitely be using it. Also, one of the topics that we will discuss in this episode is alcohol. And I was really excited because I didn't know what Dr. Parsley was going to say about alcohol when I asked him about it. And he's okay with it. <laughs> um, if used smartly and responsibly, and we'll go into the details of it in more detail. That said, it's very likely if you're drinking conventional wine, that it might not be helping your sleep because conventional wine is often full of additives, pesticides, mold, toxins, so many things that can be detrimental to your body, stressing your body out, and leaving you probably with lackluster sleep and feeling not so great the next day. 
That's why there is only one type of wine that I now drink, with the slight exception of when I'm out at a restaurant. And then I just (laughs) go through the list and do research on my iPhone and hope that they have an organic wine. But even organic wines can have high alcohol, high sugar, mold, and other toxins, even pesticides. Thankfully, there's a company called Dry Farm Wines. They are my go-to for wine that supports health and sleep. Basically, they go throughout Europe. They find the wineries practicing organic practices, but it doesn't stop there. They test the wines to make sure the wines are low sugar, low alcohol, free of toxins, and free of mold. Their wines are clean. They're healthy. If you want to have wine and really support your sleep and health, I cannot recommend them enough. And I'm even more grateful because they are providing my listeners with a bottle for a penny. Yes, you heard that right. Just go to dryfromwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and you can receive a bottle for a penny. One other item I really, really love for my sleep is my chili pad. We talk about it in the podcast as well, but if you have any problems with sleep temperature issues, so if you wake up too hot or wake up too cold, chili pad could just be your solution. It's absolutely amazing. I love mine. I cannot recommend it enough. So you can go to melanieavalon.com slash sleep for the link to that. And if you do use that link, it will help support this podcast as well. All right, now enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show today. I hope you are super awake and excited for today's show. But if you're not awake, we have definitely got you covered. We have an amazing guest today, Dr. Kirk Parsley. Just wait till you hear his resume. Dr. Parsley, he is a former SEAL He received his medical degree from Bethesda. He interned to be an OBGYN at Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego. He also served in the Naval Residency in the Hyperbarics and Diving Medicine, and he's been a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine since 2006, and he served as the Naval Special Warfare's expert on sleep medicine. And it doesn't stop there. He's also certified as in hormone modulation and so much more. And he is also the developer of a supplement that I personally have been taking for years and cannot recommend enough. I've been taking it since it had a different name, (laughs) Um, but it is now known as Sleep Remedy. So I'm sure we will talk about that in the show as well. But thank you so much for being here, Dr. Parsley. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for that great intro. I I feel like we should probably stop now though, because it can only be downhill from there. That sounded really good. No, well, the listeners missed the bumps in the road. For listeners, I just realized what OBGYN stands for because I couldn't say the word. It's what is it? What does it stand for? Oh, say it again. Obstetrics and gynecology. So there you go. So if you ever want to know what OBGYN stands for, now we know. <laughs> <laughs> I've honestly been dreaming probably about this moment, no pun intended, since I first discovered your song. Probably actually since I first heard you way, way, way back in the day on Rob Wolf's podcast. Rob Wolf, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was my first podcast, actually. Really? It was a, yeah, it was actually a, yeah, it was actually a really funny story. Um, so uh, so the, at that time, I was the doctor for the SEAL teams. And um, when the SEALs would deploy, uh, you know, obviously, they were doing combat deployments at the time. So when they would deploy, they'd deploy as a team, and they would take the whole team – and all their families and they take them to these resorts and they'd have like these pre-retreats where they would, you know, have people come and talk about, you know, here are the things you're, you know, it's really more for the families. Um, 
you know, these are the things you're going to struggle with when you're, you know, when you're gone, luckily, you know, and they're, here are the resources and all that stuff. And they bring in lecturers um, to help the guys on, you know, anything that could help them with their stuff and on the families as well. And so Rob was sort of the pinch hitter for the nutrition. He came in and talked about nutrition all the time. I didn't even know what a podcast was, honestly. And all this, all these seals were coming to me and talking to me about how I should go on this guy, Rob Wolf's podcast. Cause I got, no, I got to listen to this guy, Rob Wolf's podcast. Cause he says like so many of the same things you say. And I was like, all right, whatever. And not, and I, I'd still never listened to him. Um, but he would be lecturing on nutrition, but then he, about a quarter of his lecture was on sleep. And I lectured on sleep and about a quarter of my nutrition or quarter of my lecture was on nutrition. And so we just, uh, you know, we just met, at one of the events and he's like, Hey man, I'm a big fan of your stuff. Like if you know Rob, he's just, he's the most gracious guy in the world. He's like, Hey, I'm a big man. I'm a big fan of your work. And I was like, I, I don't have any work. Like, what do you mean? Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I don't have a book. I don't have a podcast, a blog. Like, I don't know what he means. But, um, and then, uh, I don't know. We just hit it off, became friends. And then, um, and then, you know, we ended up doing probably a, a dozen of those and then all sorts of other lectures together he and I would do. And so he was at my house in San Diego cause we were doing a gig out there and I, I can't remember what, what it was, but um, we're just sitting around my house and he goes, Oh crap. I'm, I'm supposed to be doing a podcast right now. And he goes, you want to come be on my podcast? And I was like, sure. Like I, and I still really didn't know what this meant because I hadn't listened to a podcast yet or anything. So I didn't, I, I really didn't know what I was getting into. And so we put his notebook computer like on the arm of the chair in between us and just talked for an hour and a half or something. And I guess it's one of his most popular podcasts for years. So it's yeah, fortuitous force gump, you know, that's how I get through life. That's really funny. Yeah. I mean, I listen to so many podcasts. I mean, multiple episodes daily every day for since like middle school. <laughs> um, wow. I know. Yeah. I was listening to podcast podcast. Yeah. That long. Um, I, re- but I remember that episode still like distinctly. Really? So yeah, <laughs> it was a good yeah. episode. And I can't, I've, I've actually never heard myself on a podcast. So I don't have any idea what we talked about, but um, yeah. We talked I mean, about I've, sleep. I've, I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> that, was, that was pretty strong. <laughs> it was a pretty strong possibility. <laughs> I do remember you talked about, um, you talked about how the thing I, the takeaway I remember from that episode was that you were working with these seals who just nothing, nothing was working. And finally something was working and I found that very motivational. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I was so impressed by everything that you knew obviously about sleep and everything. And since then I've been dying to talk to you. So this is a moment for me. I'm flattered and, and, <laughs> and I hope I live up to the expectation here. Like you set the bar really high now. <laughs> you will. You already have. It's all good. All right. So I guess to start things off, is there anything you'd like to tell listeners about your own personal history? Like how you worked with the seals or how you came to become passionate about sleep? Is sleep your main passion or did you kind of just like fall into it? You'd never know it by hearing your intro. My, my ambition was actually to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, uh, originally, uh, so I was a seal right out of high school. It was actually a high school dropout. Um, uh, I had about, I have about a 10th grade education. 
Um, and I, I joined the Navy um, to become a SEAL. That was well before anybody knew what a SEAL was. There's, there was no celebrity status attached to it at that time. And um, I just heard that it was the toughest training in the world. And like, I was, I was like all physical, no mental. I just thought I was like a really dumb guy. Cause I'd been getting bad grades since I was in like, you know, third grade or something. Um, and I'd had plenty of teachers tell me how stupid I was. So I was pretty sure. And um, so I like, well, I'm going to do physical stuff, you know? And I, I was a, I was a pretty good football player, but I couldn't get into college cause I couldn't get good enough grades to get into college. So Said, all right, I'll go. I'll go do this other really tough training. And uh, also, I'm from like a really you know blue collar redneck family, and kind of sort of our moral obligation by family standards to for everybody to do military, all the men at least. So, um, so going to SEAL training, I did that. Uh, it was actually while I was in the military, there was quite a bit of academics um, in the first couple of years, and I did really well at it, and I was really surprised, and um, that's. You know, so I can probably thank the military for teaching me that I wasn't stupid. I was just, I just didn't, I didn't know how to learn and I didn't know how to learn academically. And, uh, and they kind of forced the discipline and regiment upon me and, and uh, I was pretty good at it. So uh, that opened a lot of doors when I got out of the military. I was in during the Clinton administration. So like we were kind of like the uh, team America. Like, we were like the police of the world. We didn't really... There no wars or anything. We just kind of went around and spanked people on the wrist and arrested people and, you know, told people not to do stuff and trained other militaries. And, um, you know, so it wasn't nearly as exciting as being a SEAL is now. And it was also a young single man's game. Um, I was on my way to becoming neither. I'd you know, met a girl. I wanted to get married and all this stuff. And so um, actually... Um, the woman who had become my wife was in, was in physical therapy school. And when, when I was on deployments, I used to take her physical therapy books and read them just because I really have always been into nutrition and health and physiology and like trying to make myself bigger, better, faster, and stronger. And so I'll, out of, out of that, I thought I would come back. I thought I was going to be a physical therapist and it takes like 2000 volunteer hours to, to get into physical therapy school. So I started volunteering at a physical therapy clinic, San Diego, San Diego sports medicine center. And they hired me within, I'd volunteered there like, I think two weeks or something. And then they hired me to be an aide. And then I worked up my way up to an assistant. And then I said, yeah, I don't want to be a physical therapist anymore. It's not the right job for me. And the doctor, the, the doctor who kind of the head of the practice, um, who's a big conglomerate practice. Um, uh, so actually the guy who talked me into becoming a doctor is the guy that I worked for the first year I got out of the Navy. So it was, it was really kind of a cool full circle, but, um, he talked me into going to medical school. Uh, the other doctors were talking to me about it and I was like, I'm like, dude, there's no way I'm going to get into medical school. I'm like, I'm a high school dropout. Like, you know, I spent two years in junior college just to get into college. Like, I, like there's, I'm not getting into medical school. And, uh, he came out and he said, well, the question isn't, can you get in? The question is, would you go if you could get in? I said, of course. And he said, well, then that's what you should do. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's pretty obvious. So I, I applied and I got in and, um, and I went to the military's medical school because I was already married and I had, I had a kid, I had another kid on the way. Um, and my time from being a SEAL counted towards my pay. And 
when you go to the military's medical school, they pay you to go to medical school and medical school's free and books and equipment and everything's free. Um, so I could support my family and go to medical school at the same time. Uh, the price for that is that you then have to stay in as a doctor, um, for eight years after you get out of medical school, you have to, you, you have to commit to being a doctor for the Navy for eight years. And I figured I would get back to the SEAL teams and I did. Um, and then when I got back to the SEAL teams, I was surprised to realize that I didn't have the slightest idea how to help the SEALs um, because none of them had disease. And in medical school, I had only learned about disease. I'd learned how to recognize, you know, identify and diagnose and treat diseases, and they didn't have disease. And SEALs are a lot like um, professional athletes. About the worst thing that you can do is take their job away from them. Um, and and that's that's not hyperbole. It's a it's really the worst thing you can do to them is say, you, you can't be a SEAL anymore. Um, and so they hide all of their, their problems from the medical community because they know that the doctors can disqualify them and, uh, not necessarily you can't be a SEAL anymore forever, but like you need to, you need to come out of your platoon and get treatment for this. And then you can go back in later. And that's just horrible for those guys. So they, they never tell the truth, but because I was a former SEAL, and there were still lots of guys at the SEAL teams that I'd been a SEAL with or had gone through training with. And, um, and they knew me and I had a good reputation. And so they came to my office and they shut the door and they said, hey, let me tell you what's really going on. And they told me this long litany of symptoms um, that, again, none of them reached disease, but all of them were very suboptimal. <laughs> you know, yeah. And these are guys who performance is everything and they just couldn't perform like they thought they should be able to um and like they used to be able to and you know um every single i mean by the time 20 guys had come in my office i could have told the next 300 guys what they were going to tell me because it was the story was just identical um and somewhere around the hundredth patient i kind of had this epiphany like your OBGYN, like a light bulb flies off in my head and i'm like Oh, he's on, he uses Ambien every night to go to sleep. I wonder if all the other, like how many of the other guys do. And so, but then I went, I went back through my notes. I realized that every single guy who'd come to talk to me was on sleep drugs. And, um, it, that's not something that would be easy to pick up. So, uh, I, I you know, being a doctor, um, like I didn't learn anything about sleep in medical school. Like you, you learn that if somebody can't sleep, you give them one of these Z drugs, which is Ambien and Lunesta. And there's another one I'm blanking on right now, but they're all basically the same thing. Um, and that was it. And that's what you do when people have sleep problems and they don't have any side effects and they're totally safe and you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to monitor them. Doesn't, they don't affect any of your blood chemistry. You know, you just, just pop them like, you know, candy and just sleep when you need to sleep. And so I just really didn't pay attention when I was taking their history and they're telling me like what they're doing and taking, I'm like, okay, yeah. Ambien, ambien, And so I said, well, let me look into this. And so, um, you know, they're, what, what, what they looked like through blood labs was they looked like metabolically broken old men. So they looked like, um, somebody with like metabolic syndrome or pre-diabetes, probably about 60 years old. And they were, of course, you know, 35, 38, 40 years old 
uh, kind of at the, uh, the upper end. Maybe there were some guys around 45. Um, I had some guys as young as 28, and they, you know, they came in, all the same symptoms. Um, their motivation sucked. Their sleep sucked. They were always tired. Their mood was just all over the place. They couldn't concentrate. They couldn't focus. They were having trouble keeping their body composition lean. Like, you know, they're way fatter than they used to be. Not as much muscle, not as strong, not as much endurance. Moody, sex drive wasn't as high, blah, 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 blah. Like everything that you would think, like what would a, what would a fat old, tired 65-year-old man come and tell you? Like this is exactly what these guys are telling me. But, you know, they're shredded and they have like six-pack abs and they're, you know, big, muscular, like um, vibrant-looking guys. And I was like, I don't have a first clue. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I just started testing like everything in their blood chemistry and all their hormones, like their, all their anabolic hormones were low, all their inflammatory markers were really high, their insulin sensitivity really sucked, uh, the blood cholesterol was you know, crappy. And um, so I, when I started looking at sleep, um, it, was the one, it was the one thing that could kind of unite you know, Occam's razor, like the, the most simplistic thing, the, the one thing that can unite the most symptoms is the most likely to be true. And as I, you know, I treated guys for adrenal fatigue and I was treating guys for, um, you know, I, I was helping guys with nutrition. I was doing all sorts of stuff to try to help them. But the one, you know, the one thing that made the most sense was sleep. And so I really started studying a lot about sleep. And the, and the beauty was in those days, um, the seals already had a really good reputation cause this was like 2009. Um, and so I could call like anybody I could like, you know, Dr. Oz, if that's who I wanted to call, you know, like this, any kind of celebrity doctor, the author of any book, um, you know, any leading clinician, you know, head of any department at any hospital. And I could say, Hey, I'm a doctor for the seals and I've read your book or I listened to your podcast or I watched your video i heard you lecture whatever i was wondering if i could train with you and they would all say yeah of course um and so i got to learn really really fast and the military allowed me to do whatever kind of training i wanted and they just kind of said do whatever you want to do of course they backtracked a lot i got a lot of, i got in a lot of trouble for doing things they didn't want me to do but that's all another story um and then uh and then I, I had so much success. They started putting me into those pre and post retreats. Like I was telling you where I met Rob. Um, they were like, well, you know, like it's not just the sick guys that need this. All the guys need to know this so that, you know, they don't run into this. I'm like, I couldn't agree more. And so um, I started doing those lectures and I got on Rob's podcast and Rob and I lectured together and um, led to all sorts of different you know, a couple hundred other podcasts and lectures all over the world and sports teams and all that stuff. And that's how I became the sleep guy. Oh my, <laughs> that it was, it's kind of like, it sounded like a horror movie in a way, or like the moment where you're going through like all of the charts and then you see this one thing that keeps popping up like Ambien, 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 <laughs> the link. That is crazy. And all I wanted, all I wanted to do was fix their hormones. That's one of the th one of the first things that I did was go get the hormonal uh, certification that you read about in my uh, bio. Because I mean, all of their hormones were just trash, and I was like, "Well, if we just fix their hormones." But then, in the military, you can't give people hormones. Um, you know, it's just like 
for what, I don't know, for whatever reason, it <laughs> had nothing to do with, um, cheating in sports, but it's kind of, you know, it's similar. It's akin to that, right? It's like, you know, you can't, if you're a professional athlete, there's lots of things you can't take. And the seals were the same way. Like they weren't allowed to, that wasn't allowed to give them hormones, but all their hormones were low. And, or the ones that were, the ones that should be high were low and the ones that should be low were high. And I, and the only way I really had to deal with that was nutrition and supplements and sleep. Um, and so I was really, I really wanted to go fix everybody's hormones, but I said, well, I can talk about their hormones when I talk about sleep because all your hormones are regulated while you're at sleep, while you're asleep. That's where all the magic happens. And, you know, here I am, I don't know, 10 years later, I'm, I'm still a sleep guy. I mean, it, it's, it's like 10% of what I do in my clinical with my clinical work, but it's, it's what I'm known for. It's what people talk to me about sleep. So. Something I was wondering was how much of it is like your, you know, your day-to-day clinical practice. Yep. You are definitely a wealth of knowledge and definitely known as the sleep guy. So what is sleep? Well, I mean, if I could define, if I could nail this, it's a good thing we're recording because if I nail this, then I'll be like the head of sleep science because uh, sleep scientists can't really agree on this a hundred percent either. Um, there's lots of what we call working definitions, which just means if we're going to study people's sleep, we're going to define sleep as this. Um, but if you look from kind of across different studies, depending on what they're studying and how they're studying it, the working definition changes sometimes a, a little bit. But the best definition, the grandfather of sleep medicine is a guy named William DeMent, uh, who retired, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. Um, he was, I think he finished at Stanford, but he was at University of Chicago and some other places. And he was like one of the original, uh, sleep doctors. Like he's one of the guys who figured out the rapid eye move, the REM, right? And like he's, he was one of the two guys that did that. Um, so, I mean, sleep medicine is only about, you know, 50 years old. It's not, not been around that long. Um, and he defined sleep as, there's a, is being a barrier. There's a barrier between you and your environment and you can be, and you can be awakened, 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 awakened. And that's his definition. Um, I take it a step further primarily because of sleep drugs. And I say, um, well, there's a barrier between you and your environment. You can be awakened and you have predictable brainwave patterns and physiology. Um, and I say that because when, if, um, when you take sleep drugs, your, your physiology, your brainwaves, and your sleep stages are not the same as when you're not taking sleep drugs. So I don't really consider it sleep. But the most accurate, and this is stupid, but the most accurate definition of sleep is lack of being awake. Because um, we don't actually have a process to drive us to sleep. What we have is hundreds and thousands of processes that take away our awareness and our awakeness. And once enough of that is gone, we're in this state which we all agree to call sleep. Um, and of course, we don't have a very good subjective measure of like we don't remember sleep very well, so it's kind of hard to describe because <laughs> by definition, you're not very aware. So. Um, it, you know, it's a hard one to define, but th- that's my, my best shot right there. So could one argue that being asleep is closer to your real, like your real state of reality and then 
being awake is beyond that. Like sleep is baseline and then being awake is going beyond. Like when babies are in the womb, are they asleep? Man, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Wait, really? I don't have any idea. I don't, they've never been able to put electrodes on a baby's head in the womb. Um, but <laughs> I wouldn't, I mean, I'm totally with you. It would be, uh, if if you could go back and remember being in the womb and you could remember every other state in your life, my guess is it would probably be the most similar uh, metaphor, where, you know, uh, would be being in the womb. Um, and a lot of that's just because they don't understand awareness yet. So there's really no awareness to be had. Um, but I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would say that it's, it's our, it's our baseline. What I would say is that, um, you know, that, that our physiology is dichotomous. I mean, there, there are, there are time, there are definitely very different times, very different things going on while we're awake in our bodies and our brains than there are when we're asleep. And you can't get either of them in either place. So I, you know, I can't, um, I can't read, I can't read the newspaper or listen to a podcast while I'm asleep. Right. Um, it's a totally different state, but there's really productive things. And actually the newspaper that I read and the podcast that I listened to during the day, that's actually all being processed and actually solidified and learned while I'm asleep. Um, but my body, my body's, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a different organism at that time. You know, like it, the, I, I think of it more as like, um, you know, sleep is really where you're recharging. What, I mean, the, the simplest way to define sleep is what sleep does is it prepares your body and your brain for tomorrow for after you get up. And if you don't sleep or if you don't sleep well, you still have to do tomorrow, right? It's not optional. Um, and so you get up and you do tomorrow, but you do it with less resources. And, and that's why I'm not a big fan of any of these tricks around, um, you know, getting less sleep and trying to perform as well. Uh, I, I, I just haven't seen any data that's convincing to me that it's actually possible. It, so I would say, you know, you know, I would say we have two very distinct states in our life. And if, and like I've, I've done uh, ayahuasca. So I've like done that plant medicine experience where you kind of lose all sense of awareness. Um, and the world's a really different place. And that's probably cognitively a lot like being asleep, but my body was definitely still awake. And I do transcendental meditation and I'd say it's the opposite. Like my brain stays awake, but my body, I, my body definitely feels like it goes to sleep. Um, so I, I, I probably just made it more confusing, but uh, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of it that way before. I mean, I, I would just say there's two different states. I mean, there's being awake and there's being asleep. They're both equally valu valuable. Um, everybody, it really seems to be put off that it you know, takes eight hours to restore their body. But it's like, hey, you get 16 hours of activity for only eight hours of sleep. Like if that were if that were a Tesla, everybody would be super happy about that, right? You could just charge it for eight hours and drive it for 16 hours straight. Everybody would be like, this is the greatest machine ever. Um, but everybody wants to biohack it and try to figure out if they can do it with six hours of sleep and then they can do more than other people or four hours of sleep and they can do more and I just don't think it works well. 
I know it doesn't work. Oh, that is a like a major good question that I had was the eight hours is often thrown around as the amount of sleep we need. Do you think that eight hours is a pretty consistent, um, I mean, among everybody or is sleep needs more intuitive? Do some people naturally need less sleep? Some naturally need more? So um, I have not seen any compelling evidence. There's, you know, there are sometimes a few studies here and there um, that, you know, I won't, I won't be critical of just because I can't remember specifics of anything right now that, that I would want to point out. Um, but if you look at the body of, if you look at the body, any body of science, there's a ton of controversy in it. Like look at nutrition. Are you supposed to be a vegan or are you supposed to be keto? Um, you know, you can get brilliant scientists who spent their whole life studying nutrition. who will tell you that being keto is the best thing you should do. You best thing you could possibly do, or paleo is the best thing you could possibly do. And then you have brilliant scientists who spent their whole life studying nutrition who will say, no, being a vegan is the best thing that you can do or vegetarian or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of, and most branches of science are like that. Um, that it, I mean, surgery is like that. No, no, you don't do it this way. You do it that way. Like, I mean, every, just about everything we study, there's a lot of controversy. In. There's no controversy with sleep. We, so William, back in William Dement's day, in the very beginning, when they're trying to figure out that very question, I mean, that was the question on everybody's mind. If you think about it, humans evolved to sleep on this planet and we basically sleep when it's nighttime and we're awake when it's daytime. And that's how we're, that's how we're wired. That's why the, that's why the sunlight and the blue light in our eyes affects our sleep so much. And we can talk more about that later, but the question once, um, industrialization and rural electrification came along, the question then became, well, how much do I have to sleep? Because, well, as soon as time became money and money became this sort of universal reward that we could use to, you know, for, to buy all sorts of other resources, um, I wanted, everybody wanted more money. So how much do I actually have to sleep? And so that was one of the first questions that they set out to study is um, how much sleep do we need? And then I know um, you want to talk about sleep debt. So I could talk about that. At the, in the same in the same story, what what they do is um, you know since you know, working adults usually can't take a whole lot of time off and researchers can't pay research subjects a whole lot of money. Most of the uh, most of the original research was done on college students, um, but what they would do is during the summer, um, and, and this has been replicated hundreds of times across all sorts of different cultures and different countries and, you know, different, uh, you know, different distances from the equator and all, all sorts of variables have been thought about testing on this. But what they do is they would take people and they would put them in a bunker. And so there was absolutely no light. These were World War II bunkers. There was just no light. It was a concrete room. They had like a toilet and a bed and they closed the door and they had to stay in the room 14 hours a day. And there was no light to be turned on. There was no book to be read. There were you know, obviously no iPhones, anything like that. I mean, this is in the sixties and um, they would just put them in there and they'd let them sleep and they'd check on them from time to time and see if they were awake, but they left them in the room no matter what for 14 hours every day. And then 
they went out for the 10 hours, they could do whatever they wanted to do. And then they had to come back and be right. And so they did this for a very long time. And when they very, and when they first start, no matter who they do this to, like whether it's college students or farmers or, I mean, uh, hunter gatherer, it doesn't matter. Um, when you do this, people, uh, that have any control or that try to exercise any control over when they sleep and when they, when they wake up, um, the average person sleeps 12 and a half hours when they first start this. And they have no idea that they've slept 12 and a half hours. And if you ask them how long they sleep, they have no clue. Like they'll guess anywhere from six hours to nine hours. Or nobody, nobody would think that they slept 12 and a half hours, but the average person sleeps 12 and a half hours. And if you keep doing this over time, and um, different studies show different time frames, but roughly somewhere around a month, you know, three weeks to a month, you'll start to, you'll see, you know, everybody will sleep 12 and a half hours when they first start, and then they'll just keep going down and down and down and down and down until everybody plateaus. And then no matter how long you take it out, the average person is sleeping seven and a half hours. And the, the deviation of that is 30 minutes. So it's seven and a half hours, plus or minus half an hour, basically encompassed about 99.9995623% of everybody. Um, and so what was happening in the beginning is they were paying back their sleep debt. So now they've paid back their sleep debt, and now, there's, now they're functioning. And if you think about what that means, if they were sleeping seven and a half hours, that means that they were laying in a bed in a cold, dark room with nothing to do for six and a half hours a day, and they weren't falling asleep. Not very many people could do that, right? So it proved that they they didn't need any more sleep. They weren't dozing off. They weren't taking naps. Like They were sleeping seven and a half hours. They were getting up. They were ready to be awake, and they were staying awake the whole day. Now, that then later got extrapolated into when we start testing people for how much does your performance decline with lack of sleep? Well, it only makes sense that we have to make sure that you're performing at your best first, right? So we have to sleep adapt you first. We have to get rid of your sleep deficit, um, your sleep debt. And, and so once you pay back your sleep debt, now you're at your optimal and now we can start testing you and we can teach you something new, like to type, you're on your computer with only your left hand or, you know, to use your right thumb to push the yellow button when this happens and reuse your left index finger to push the red button when this happens or, you know, just things that you wouldn't know how to do. And then we're just teaching you how to do them and testing you on them. And then that becomes your baseline. And then if we take away a little bit of sleep and instead of sleeping an average of eight hours or so, you sleep about six hours. And then we test you the next day. And you're, guess what? Your performance goes down. And it keeps going down every day. And um, after about three days or four days, you think that you've completely adapted and that you're doing as well as you've ever done. And no matter how long they keep the study going, you will keep getting worse. Um, and your, your learning rate just keeps decreasing. Your memory gets worse and worse and worse. Your problem-solving ability gets worse and worse. Your endurance gets worse. Your strength gets worse. Your emotional stability gets worse. Your ability to recognize other people's emotions get worse. Your communication gets worse. Everything gets worse forever. <laughs> I mean, it never stops. As long as you sleep deprive yourself, you just keep getting worse. That's fascinating. 
I was like on the edge of my seat during that whole story. Wow. It's scary, right? Because it's like the average American sleeps 6.2 hours. I mean, the average American function, the average American is functioning most of the day the same as they would be if they were drunk or just, you know, like mildly drunk. And so I don't know if you saw my TED talk, but that was a metaphor I used in my TED talk was, you know, what if your surgeon just took a shot like right before your surgery and said, all right, let's go. Like you'd freak out and you'd be like, wait, wait, wait. I'm like, I don't want a surgeon who's been drinking. Or your pilot. But or your pilot, right? It's like, yeah, your pilot comes out and said, hey, free shots for everybody before we take off, right? And everybody would want to get off the plane. But is your pilot sleep deprived? Almost certainly. <laughs> and, you know, they've done tons of studies now where they'll do exactly what I just told you and they'll test, you know, they'll test you know, optimized people in some event, or they've done it with things like drinking and driving versus uh, sleep, sleep deprivation and driving or any type of hand-eye coordination or juggling or playing musical instruments or solving math problems, whatever, verbal fluency, all the things that you test people for when they're drunk and you say, oh, they're, they're impaired. And, and there's a very strong, I mean, there's a very well laid out correlation that if you deprive yourself of this much sleep, you will perform as though you have a blood alcohol level of about here. And interestingly, um, so my ex-wife is actually from Australia and she, in, in Australia, the legal, uh, legal limits a lot lower. It's so we have what we have 0.08. And so they have 0.05 is their limit. Well, if you sleep six hours a night, and you drive after you've been awake for 16 hours, you perform exactly uh, you perform exactly like somebody who's at that limit. Um, if you sleep two hours less than you need uh, for about 10 or 11 days in a row, which is very common, um, you perform as though you have a point a blood a blood alcohol level of 0.1, so well above the legal limit for the U.S. And how many Americans sleep two hours less than they need almost their entire adult life? But just like when you drink, you know, one of the big problems with drinking is that you don't realize you're impaired. Your awareness of how well you're functioning is diminished. And the same thing when you're sleep deprived. You think you're doing just fine. Like you think your performance is okay. You think you look all right. You think your aging is okay. It's like you think you're in pretty good shape. You think you're performing pretty well at your job. But once you readapt, like once you pay back your sleep debt and start sleeping the way you should every night, you'll be like, holy crap, was I wrong? Like I was, I was, you know, like I was, I was a ball of trash. I didn't even recognize it. I thought I was doing pretty well. So most of us might be walking around drunk. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. Another interesting, just add on to that story is that when when you are sleep deprived and you're performing as though you're already drunk, every alcoholic drink has about twice the impact on it that it would have if you weren't sleep deprived. So if you're, if you're regularly sleep deprived and you have two alcoholic drinks and you get in your car and you're driving, you are drunk driver. I don't know. Like, I don't care how big you are. Like, uh, I mean, it, how much you had to eat, like you're a drunk driver. That is really scary. But, there is hope, <laughs> which hopefully we'll get to. Um, I do have some follow-up questions, though, about that sleep debt study. So 
making up one's sleep debt, I mean, that's crazy to me that it takes, you know, you said what, 12 hours for like, it takes them like a month of 12 hours every night? No, no. So they, they would, they would start about 12 and a half hours. And then, you know, a few days later, they'd be sleeping like 11 and a half hours and then 10 and a half hours and then nine and a half. And, like, and it works its way down. Okay. So it's not like 12 hours a day for three weeks or a month or something. It's just, if you want to do it all at once and do it super rapidly, that that's it. it I mean, there might've been some people that did it as fast as two weeks, but I don't think it was any, anyone ever got through it faster than that. So about two weeks and that's, that's college students. So I don't know where they were and they're obviously they were on summer break or something. So I don't know what they'd been doing to themselves for finals and drinking and who knows. Um, it, I, I don't think you can extrapolate it and say like, that's the answer, but it, the point is just that it's really consistent that when you do that, that people need a lot of sleep. And if you take away, if you give people permission to sleep and you take away their awareness of time, people will sleep a really long time. One of the things that happens with my sleep supplement at Boost all the time is I give away, I give away samples and, um, and then people come by the next day and they, and they buy the product and they say, man, I took this last night and I slept for 10 hours or 11 hours or 12 hours or something like that. And I was like, like, that's great. I'm I'm glad you got a good night's sleep, but this product did not make you sleep that long because there's nothing in there that lasts more than three or four hours. Um, so that, that was primarily, they got into a good state of sleep, but then they also had given themselves permission to sleep as long as they needed to sleep. Cause you know, they probably heard me wax on about, you know, that in a lecture or something. So yeah, so it's not the same thing as these sleep medicines that, or actual sleep drugs that are creating this groggy effect the next day that just lasts and lasts and never even having entered, I guess, that true form of sleep. Um, I do have a quick question. So you were saying that it came out to be about seven and a half hours for the individual. What do you think about like early birds versus night? versus night owls. Do you think with the eight hours that we all naturally would have those, if there was no artificial lighting, no time commitments, no anything, we would all have these eight hours naturally aligning with the darkness? Or do you think some people are naturally, quote, night owls and some people are early birds? Yeah, so the difference between owls and larks is definitely very well documented. Uh, The data is strong on that. And, um, it, and it's a, it's a safe, it's a safe, uh, scientific position to, to say that those, that those two exist, you know, exactly what does that mean? Isn't as clear. Um, but, but the difference really isn't when, um, when you're sleeping is, is, I mean, it is now, um, but when you, and I'll get back to this, but the the more the most important thing between an owl and a lark is that a lark feels very 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 awake immediately upon waking, and that's their highest productivity and it's their highest creativity and like that's when they should be getting after it in their life. An owl feels at their peak much later in the day. Um, now, if you use the sun and you don't have any electricity, and we have the benefit of still being able to do these studies. Um, one of these studies was done, I don't know, I covered it, I, I wrote I wrote a, 
I wrote a piece on it on, on my website. So you could look up the exact date and article. I can't remember, but it was, it was probably five years ago, four or five years ago. Um, they, they, some researchers went out and found hunter gatherers, um, communities that had never been exposed to electricity and they studied them and, uh, you know, they just tried to stay out of the way and they just watched them and they watched how they ate and they watched how they slept and all sorts of things. And there were some sleep researchers there and they had these, they were having them wear the, you know, actigraphy watches that would, you know, measure their movement and so forth. And, what they found um, across all seasons, and I can't remember how many groups there were. There were five or six uh, different groups they were studying um, in, in different regions. Um, but it, it, it really didn't matter really what they ate or how they spent their days or when they felt the most awake. Everybody, fell asleep, everybody went to sleep about three to three and a half hours after the sun went down. And they woke up right before the sun came up or right around the same time the sun came up. Um, and in the shorter nights, sometimes they would, they'd be waking up as long as maybe an hour after the sun came up. Sorry, it broke up for me. Did you say how, how long after the sun went down? Three? It's three to three and a half hours after the sun goes down is what most research shows. And then you wake up right around the time the sun's going to come up. Some of that has to do with body temperature. These people, you know, they're not sleeping in beds. They're, there's like five people curled up on an animal fur, you know, like the whole family sleeps together, that, that kind of uh, sleeping environment. Um, but everybody wakes up right around the time the sun's coming up. So maybe a little bit before, maybe a little after. And then sometimes in the summers when the nights were really short and the days were really long, they would wake up an hour it might have been as long as an hour and a half after the sun came up. I can't remember exactly. It's been a while since I read it, but it, I mean, it's just really consistent and it's consistent with everything else we know in, in sleep science is that, you know, your circadian rhythm can be pushed around, but it can't be shortened or lengthened really. I mean, it's like, it just, it is what it is. Like you need that much sleep. <laughs> I mean, it, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, if you think about how vulnerable a human being is, you think about what crappy predators we are, we really are anyway. Right. I mean, like, um, like a really angry squirrel in my backyard would probably be slightly intimidating to me because he's got like things and claws and stuff and might scratch my eyes out. And so like, we're not, we're not very tough animals when you just look at us, it's like compared to all the, all the carnivores that would want to eat us intuitively. It just seems we would, would make the most sense for us to kind of go hide in the dark and sleep and, you know, not, not be out there when, uh, when the world was really dangerous, was an even more dangerous place for us to be, which is most of human existence. You know, our fights haven't been against oppression and, <laughs> and finances and stuff like that has been, an, I mean, it's been, you know, fighting against nature to stay alive. And, um, it, you know, you, you, you think if, um, if evolution, you know, evolution of, um, favors, alterations in people. So when there's a genetic mutation and it changes the way a person behaves or the way, uh, a, you know, a person is built or, um, you know, their strength or their speed or the height or whatever, um, evolution selects out and like, well, this is better and this is better and this is better. But, you know, interestingly, of course we don't have sleep studies from a long time ago. Maybe people used to always sleep 12 hours, but interestingly, nobody, like nobody's, nobody has evolved to sleep less than eight hours. 
Um, but it, it would have been a great benefit. One would think to, if you only had to sleep four hours, well, then that's four less hours. You're vulnerable. That's true. You'd think evolution would have selected for that. (laughs) Yeah. So the fact that it hasn't been able to makes me pretty sure that, you know, a 35 year old biohacker who's, you know, got 35 years of experience on this planet probably isn't going to outsmart, you know, a few million years worth of evolution. And you just need to sleep. That's a very valid argument. That I find that reassuring. <laughs> Do you consider yourself a um, a night owl, or are you a morning person? I'm an I'm definitely an owl. I think if I could cha- like, if I could change a few like one thing about me, it literally might be I want to be a morning person so bad, like so uh, bad. I don't know, but well, you're um, young. You'll appreciate it later. I love being an owl now. I hate, like I was right where you were. I, like when I was when I was young and. The, the race was on and everything was about achievement and productivity. I went, man, I wanted to be able to hop out of bed and just get on, you know, and in the military, I didn't really have a choice. right? <laughs> like, oh, true. But go ahead. If you could change one thing. Yeah. Just for that reason, I just, I don't know. There's just this idea that morning people are, you know, so productive and that's the way you should be. But every time I try like consciously to become a morning person, it, it does not matter what I do. I always, come back to my natural owl self. Like even if I wake up at like 3 a.m. and I'm like, okay, I'm up at 3 a.m. I'm going to be tired come 7 p.m. It doesn't matter. I will be awake. (laughs) Still, wait. Um, Because what inevitably inevitably happens in that situation is I will probably succumb to a nap and then I'll be up later. But even if I don't um, have a nap, it doesn't matter. Like come evening like something just kicks in and I'm awake and I'm like good to go and I'm productive. Your, yeah, your product your productivity is later in the day. Yeah. And that's and you know, and it and unfortunately, you know, because of you know, it's, it's primarily around children and and um and school and then corporate work times, you know. That's that's what's driven our behavior. But you know, when you're you know, when you work for yourself, when you're an entrepreneur, like I mean I I like I have 100% control of my schedule. I don't ever have to be awake if I don't want to be, and I don't ever have to be sleeping. Well, you know, travel is an exception, obviously. But, um, you know, I know when my most productive times are, and it took me a long time to just say, you know what, I'm never going to be good at this. Like I'm, I'm never going to get up in the morning and write for two hours. It's just not going to happen. It's never, ever, ever going to happen. So I just gave up on that idea. <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to write at this block because this is when I actually feel like writing. Um, and I've done so many different testing, you know, so many different testings for that, um, you know, personality types and your flow, like how, you know, when you're in your flow and how you get in your flow and what, like, what are you know, mentally taxing things for you and what are creative things for you and what do you enjoy and what's drudgery and how do you schedule a day around that? I've had so much coaching around there. It's unbelievable. And it all basically boils down to exactly what you would have done if no one ever taught you anything and you just, and you didn't have any prejudices and you just said, Oh, I don't feel like doing that now. Uh, I'm going to do that when I feel like doing it because the drudgery is just drudgery. Like it's just crap work. You have to get through it. You have to reply to these emails and whatever, pay bills and handle employee, you know, invoices and complaints and whatever. And you're like, you just have to do that. And it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be cool. It's not going to be exciting. It's not going to be rewarding. And there's some point in your day, you're going to have to grind through that. 
Well, I grind through that when I don't feel like doing anything anyway. <laughs> so it's like, I might as well just grind through this crap right now. It's like, like I just actually want to sit here and drink my coffee and stare out the window. But I'll just force myself to answer these emails while I'm doing that. And then later on in the day when I do actually feel like being productive and creative and active, that's when that's scheduled in my day. Like I, I, I never write before probably one o'clock would be the earliest I'd ever try to write. And usually it's probably like three to six. That's my peak time. If I'm going to write a blog or when I was writing my book or like anything like that's, that's the time I write. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show, like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold content 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. I was smiling so much when you said that because I, I was about to say, yep, that's what I do. Like in the morning, well, the morning, <laughs> the afternoon when I'm not on point yet even um, is when I do all of that. Yeah. that quote, mindless, you know, stuff that doesn't require much creative thinking as far as like answering emails, doing all the, the stuff, editing right. the podcast. Um, Part of life is just a grind and you, know, you have to be disciplined enough to do them, but you should also be smart enough to do them at the best time of the day for you. There's no, there's no sense in making it suck just to make it suck. Uh, Even if I don't actually enjoy doing it, I enjoy doing it because it feels productive to me. So I feel okay. <laughs> doing it. And then I get right. creative later, like you said. Although my creativity window is like 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., which is not ideal, but I embrace it. That's, I mean, that's actually, that's actually not that bad. I mean, as long as you can, as long as you could wind down pretty quickly after that. That's the thing. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I, if you, if you could sleep from, you know, 1130 to 730 every day or something like that, like that there's nothing wrong with that. It's like when you start getting really far away from that three hours post sun, like I'm, I'm in Austin at 
it, it won't get dark here tonight till like nine thirty, probably. I'll probably be in bed when it's getting dark, you know. Um, so, I mean, it, you're not too far off if you know if you're within a couple hours. Oh well, I'm not really that. I'm more like a two to eleven oh, type person. Yeah, that's that's probably not ideal. <laughs> but it always goes back to that. <laughs> but um, okay, getting back to the sleep stuff. Here's a major question I do have. So say that a person needs eight hours. Um, it, does it matter if they sleep seemingly straight through those eight hours? Or what if they're waking up, you know, after, I guess, their sleep cycles? Um, like I, for example, rarely ever like go to bed and then wake up the next morning. I, I tend to wake up after. I mean, it seems to be sleep cycles. It seems to be every like three hours. Mm-hmm. Does that mean anything? I know some people will wake up and can't fall back asleep. So that's another question. So I guess the two aspects, what if you're waking up, but you do fall back asleep, but you wake up after, you know, at these certain hours versus waking up and can't fall back asleep. Everybody wakes up in the, in the night, just not everybody remembers it. And you may not be remembering it just because of the physiology of your brain at that time, or you may not be remembering it because you're not as awake and it's not as significant. Um, you know, like usually let's say you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and you're hearing some odd thumping noise and you think maybe somebody's trying to break in your car and you look out your window or whatever and you go back in bed, like you'll remember that wake up, but that same wake up could happen the next night and there was really nothing significant. You just kind of woke up and you didn't think about it and you went back to sleep. Um, so waking up, uh, is is completely normal. And, um, you know, we do, you know, you can do sleep studies on people. Um, and these are probably not the healthiest sleepers for sure, but, um, you know, there are people that wake up like 300 times a night, um, you know, by, by brainwaves. Like when we're studying the physiology that we say, well, this is what, this is what your physiology looks like when you're asleep. And when you're out of that, you're not asleep anymore. Um, there's a lot of micro wakings, but what I think what you're alluding to, and it's um, it's a postulate. I mean, I don't think that I don't think that it's ever been proven anywhere. But I, I, I mean, really, where it's where it's been proven is in literature. So if you look at um, if you look at the recordings of prolific writers, they they almost always kept journals as well. So. Um, when we look back even, say, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, um, people that lived in fairly modern conditions, they weren't worried about getting eaten by animals in the middle of the night and all that stuff. Um, they tended to wake up during the winter. They tended to wake up for a pretty large block of time. And actually, um, I don't remember where I heard it from, but the, uh, somebody said, well, you know, that, that's probably when they were making more babies as well, right? And like that was probably the procreation period because, you know, everybody had really small houses and kind of all slept in one area. And so while the kids stayed asleep, like the parents got to play a little. Um, but there's, there's all sorts of examples across even cultures today, um, South American cultures. Um, but there's a lot of documentations in like journals and in written into, um, you know, in written into literature about how people would sleep for four or five hours and then they would get up and they might go next door and talk to their neighbor for an hour or two, or they might hang out with their, 
significant other or whatever, they might read for a bit or, you know, have a, have a cup of tea or smoke a cigar or write and whatever people did back then. I don't know. And then they would go back to sleep and they'd sleep for another three to four hours. And so they would end up getting, you know, around eight hours of sleep, but they would do that over the course of about 12 hours. Um, and that was because the nights were so long. Um, you know, the thought was that, uh, they were getting to bed early enough to get through the first half of their sleep. And then the second half of their sleep could wait. Uh, essentially they woke up enough and knew kind of, uh, because they'd been alive long enough to understand the planet. They knew that they knew that the night was going to be longer than they were going to sleep. So they just chose to get up and do some things. And of course they didn't have electricity and so forth. So that wasn't the same type of stimulus that we would get if we got up early and did the same thing. But, um, the, the way this, the way sleep works is when you first go to sleep at night, there's something that's called sleep pressure and sleep pressure is really more than anything. It's, it's a buildup of, um, essentially waste products in your brain. And, um, when you feel just really tired and you feel like your brain just really can't function very well, it's because there's, there's essentially there's a bunch of waste products in there. So, um, you know, like we, we eat food and we digest food and we waste food, right? And, and every cell in our body does that. So every cell in your body takes things in and it produces waste. And in your brain, that waste gets flushed out when you're asleep and primarily in like the first 90 minutes of sleep. But all of that pressure or all of the, all those weight, all of those, uh, uh, waste products are creating what we call sleep pressure and they're making you feel like I need to go to sleep. I need to turn my brain off because your brain wants to flush all of that stuff out. Sort of intuitively your, your body's physiology is like, Hey, we need to flush the brain out. So let's go to sleep. And your brain isn't working great because there's a bunch of crap around literally it's cell crap, but it's crap. And when you first go to sleep, the, there are certain cells in your body and your brain that hold they kind of hold the structure of the brain together, and these cells actually contract. And when they contract, they're like they're shrinking and they're pulling themselves in tighter, and they're creating bigger gaps. And then the cerebral spinal fluid can flow better, and it can flush out all of these waste products in your brain. And then everything kind of starts going back to normal. And over the first sleep cycle, or definitely by the end of the second sleep cycle, all of that flushing has been done. When, when any cell in our body does anything, it, use, it, it needs some sort of energy to do it. And what humans, what humans operate off of is something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So it's, it's in the, the molecule, the main molecule is called adenosine. And then you put these little phosphate molecules on the end of them and you put three on and it's a triphosphate. And this is what our cells use to do their job. So that, just think of it like electricity. You don't have to understand. It's just like this is the electricity for every cell. And every cell has like its own little generator that's producing this amount of electricity. Well, AT, ATP gets broken into ADP because um, it's a diphosphate. And then it gets broken down into AMP. It's a monophosphate. And then it gets broken down to just adenosine. And then it's just an adenosine molecule floating around in your brain. And you have receptors in your brain for adenosine. And when adenosine binds those receptors, it makes you feel really, really tired because it's a signal to your brain that 
you have a lot of, you've used up a lot of energy and you need to rest. And so the more active your body is, or the more active your brain is, the more adenosine you put build up in your brain. All caffeine does is block adenosine receptors. So it competes for the same place that the adenosine is trying to go. Caffeine will get in there instead. And so then you don't get shut down by that and you feel a little more stimulated and you feel a little more awake. So that like, that's the, that that's kind of the whole thing about like what's putting you to sleep is this adenosine and waste other and other waste products. And once you fall asleep and you flush everything out, if you're running at an, at a high level of adrenal function, high levels of stress hormones is what that means. And this is what I, this was my second postulate with the seals is that, you know, they, you know, they're, they're going out they're they're in war. Of course they have high stress levels. So they have high stress hormones levels, which means those levels have to come way down for them to be able to get adequate sleep, which is why they need to sleep drugs. So when you just naturally fall asleep, it hopefully it's because of the light, you know, you've, you've done the light thing, right. And your environment is slowing down around you. And then all these pressures are building up in your brain. You're going to sleep and everything's flushing out and then your brain carries on. So when you first go to sleep, you go through, you almost immediately go into what we call deep sleep or slow wave sleep. So there's different stages of sleep. There's stage one, two, three, four. Um, and those are labeled different things, but we'll just call the three and four. We just call slow wave or deep sleep. So we'll just say deep sleep. And then you can come back actually above one when we're looking at brain uh, neurophysiology it's actually a higher level of operating above stage sleep one is something we call REM, which is rapid eye movement. And so what happens in the sleep cycle is you get in bed, you start falling asleep when you're, when you're still, well, when you're sleepy, you're in stage one, when you lay in your bed and you're kind of aware of what's going on. It's like you have some awareness of what's going on around you, but you aren't really responding to it. You don't, it's not really something you have an option to respond to you, but you, you, you have some awareness of your environment. That's stage two. Then you get on to stage three and four and you're in really deep sleep. And at this time, that's when you're in a, we're really, you're, you're a completely different machine at that point than you were when you were awake. And now what your body is doing is repairing and it's secreting all of the anabolic or growth promoting hormones and inflammatory products and fluids and it's repairing damaged tissues and overworked muscles and it's you know it's repairing you know brain damage if you've you know if you've hit your head or you've had concussions or whatever like it's just your body is just preparing and getting itself ready to be stronger or at least as strong for tomorrow. And then you crawl back out of that and you slowly pop back through those stages and you come all the way back to a level of REM and then you go past one level of REM and then that's what we call one sleep cycle. So what happens, and that is anywhere from 90 minutes to 120 minutes. So what happens to a lot of people is that they're so stressed out, they're so wound up or they're just completely ignoring sleep hygiene. They have bright lights going and loud music and they're cranking on their computer and they're working and they just, they're just exhausted and they just go to bed and they go through a sleep cycle. 
and it flushes all the waste products out of their brain and they get a little bit of recuperation and a little bit of restoration. And then when they come back through from stage one to REM sleep, you have to go through being awake uh, to get from stage one to REM. You actually go through the period where we call that's an awake brain state. And then you do REM and then you go back through awake down to stage one and do that. You have to do this whole cycle over and over again. Um, so if you have too much stress hormones, you have too many weight promoting and stress hormones, you could really just say these are, these are chemicals in your brain that are promoting your brain to be awake. They're encouraging you to be awake. And there's good evolutionary reasoning for that. But right now we're stressed over all sorts of crap that has nothing to do with our survival but our brain doesn't know the difference. And so you do one good sleep cycle, maybe two good sleep cycles, and then your stress hormones are high enough to just, when you come back through that wake period, you're just like, nope, I'm awake. My brain's awake. I'm ready to be awake. And then that becomes a learned behavior, which is a self-propagating downward spiral. You just keep doing more and more and more of that. Okay. That explains a lot. I mean, just personally for me, historically looking at my sleep, I think I've experienced both where, you know, I'd wake up after a cycle and then be it from the elevated stress hormones or the conditioning of it, I'd be like, oh, I can't fall back asleep. And then it would just become a thing. Whereas other times in my life, I would consciously be aware of waking up between these cycles, but then could, you know, slip back into the next one. Right. So many complicated things. Yeah. I want to get your thoughts really quickly on like common sleep aids that people use to fall asleep. So pharmaceutical drugs, how are they working? And then also antihistamines like Benadryl, for example. I know a lot of people can knock themselves out with that. What are your thoughts on those and how are those how are those working? I, I probably should have prefaced all of this. Everything that I am saying um, is so oversimplified uh, to where like a good sleep researcher would want to correct almost every sentence I'm saying. And I, <laughs> and I realize it, but it this is the way to make it palatable, right? Like you, you have to, you have to simplify it to where somebody who hasn't been studying this for 20 years can, can actually understand it. Um, and so the stress hormones, as we know, I mean, most people think of stress hormones as, cor as, as cortisol and cortisol is one of the stress hormones, but there's also epinephrine and norepinephrine. There's other, there's other hormones that are, that our bodies secrete to tell our brains to be awake. And a lot of them are lumped into this you know, pathway we call a stress hormone. Now you're supposed to have some stress, right? Stress hormones are what keep you alive. If you have no stress hormones, you're dead. Like uh, when you wake up in the morning, your stress hormones aren't that high. So you're not that awake. And if your stress hormones went really high, you would be really awake. And if you're laying around on your couch and you're reading a book and, you know, it's early in the morning or late at night, your stress hormones are probably really low. But then, I don't know, if you hear gunshots at your neighbor's house or a car crashes into a tree in your yard or something, your stress hormones go really high and now you're really awake. So stress hormones are a good thing. It's just where are we living at the basal level of them? Like how much of them are, do we have um, relative to how we evolved? And we do know that when you have stress hormones that are too high for too long, they actually have the opposite effect of what stress hormones usually do. And what stress hormones usually do is they make you better. So if you think about fight or flight, um, 
this is like, that's the ultimate stress level, right? That's when your adrenal response is the highest. So this is ancestrally when, you know, our ancestors would see like a, you know, a black, orange, white stripe pattern on an animal fur, like through the bushes, whatever. And that immediately sparks off this area in our brain called the amygdala that just says maximum stress, get out of there. Or today it's like, you know, you almost get in a car crash or somebody's trying to pick a fight with you or the police come knocking on your door, or your boss is angry with you or your spouse is angry at you. Your brain perceives all that is the same. It's all, it's all a threat to your survival. So you get these stress hormones and we've developed our lives. I mean, even answering your cell phone, that's a level of stress, your cell phone ringing in your pocket and you're pulling it out. Even if you don't feel any stress, well, that's stress hormones just making you more alert to that thing because you weren't paying attention to that. Now you have to pay attention to what you were paying attention to and the phone and you're driving and, 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 and that's just the way our lives have gotten. So we're running at really high stress hormones, and then and that's that's completely counterproductive to getting good sleep. But there's other chemicals in our brains um, that are usually called. They're just for simplicity, we'll just call them neurotransmitters. Um, there's neurotransmitters in our brains that just promote being awake. They they're just in there when you, when your overall physiologic state is convincingly to your brain that now we're supposed to be awake, you'll be awake. And the, there'll be a lot of these weight promoting uh, neurotransmitters floating around in your brain and making your brain work really well and making your vision work well and your hearing work well and your ability to interact and perceive the world around you is really good because every cell in your body has agreed that we're supposed to be awake right now. Well, histamine is a weight promote is a weight promoting neurotransmitter. So an antihistamine just blocks histamine. And it's it you know it's not getting rid of the problem, right? If the problem is a fire, um, you know, this is just like, well, you know, throw a blanket over the couch so the fire doesn't burn the couch down or whatever. Like you're not solving the problems, like there's still a fire there, right? Um, so if you have a lot of weight promoting neurochemistry when you should be asleep, that's because you're doing a lot of other things wrong, assuming that your goal is to go to sleep at the, you know, at, at the sort of ideal time. You're, you've messed up your sleep routine quite a bit to where you have a lot of these uh, neurochemicals that shouldn't be there keeping you awake. Wipe all of that aside. Um, it, if we get to talking about sleep hygiene, I assume we'll, we'll do a little bit about that. Um, I can simplify sleep hygiene really down into just two things. And what happens when you take a sleep drug is sleep drug is trying to do a pharmacological trick. It's doing something different in your brain than your brain is capable of doing. So there's this peptide in your brain when as your brain is getting ready to go to sleep, it's increasing and it's called GABA. Most people have heard of that capital G A B A gamma amino butyric acid and GABA kind of slows down your brain and makes you less involved with your environment. Well, what a sleep drug like a pharmacological sleep drug does is it binds to the same receptor that GABA would bind to, but it binds to it with a thousand times the affinity, which means that there's 999 GABA molecules and one molecule of the sleep drug 
the one molecule of sleep drug is still just as likely to bind that over the thousand GABAs. And when it binds that receptor, it has an effect that's like a thousand times more. So if we go back to like our little electricity metaphor, it's like, you know, you have like a little nine volt battery, you know, a little receptor for a nine volt battery and you're putting, you know, like 220 volts or 220 uh, you know, volts of electricity into this. And it's having a super physiologic effect. It's doing way more of what GABA would do. That receptor is acting in a way that it would never wear, work any other. It would never, would never happen if you didn't put this drug in your body. And when I talked about the sleep stages earlier, so going down through the sleep stages and with a rather predictable time period and a reg, rather predictable cycle in and out of these with deep sleep happening primarily at the beginning of the night and REM sleep happening primarily in the second half of sleep, that architecture does not exist anymore when you take sleep drugs. So by my definition of sleep, and this is why I added to William Demence, is that by my definition, you're not asleep because you're not going through the normal sleep cycles and you're not staying the same, like some, some stages you won't even get into and then the stages you do get into, you might be in them twice as long or three times as long as you should have or half as long as you or quarter as long as you should have. So every sleep aid on the planet affects sleep architecture. And they all do it to various degrees. And it's all dosage dependent and time of day dependent. And phys- you know, there's some individual physiology. But the basics of it is when you take a sleep drug, you pretty much rob your brain of REM sleep. Um, which is where your brain is really getting smarter is during REM sleep. That's when your brain's doing most of its um, getting ready for tomorrow. And if you use alcohol or benzodiazepines or antihistamines, you lose primarily the, the deep sleep, which is when your body is actually restoring and getting ready for tomorrow. Um, of course, both are happening in both phases. So that's an oversimplification, but The bottom line is that all sleep drugs negatively impact sleep architecture. And when we say that people need seven and a half hours, plus or minus half an hour, that's with normal sleep architecture. If they have abnormal sleep architecture and they're not staying in deep cycles long enough or they're not getting enough REM, those people very often need nine or 10 hours of sleep. So it's just not sleep. It's it's unconsciousness and it's just not sleep. So definitely not the route to go. What about, and I asked in my, um, one of my Facebook groups questions for a sleep expert. And the, probably the question I got the most was using melatonin Melatonin. to sleep. Melatonin. The magic magic of melatonin. (laughs) Yeah. People want to know, is it okay to use? How much to use? Is it addictive? Does it change your natural melatonin secretion? This is a question we don't have a a great answer to whether or not it decreases the production of melatonin that your brain sees. So through, through some kind of physiologic and pharmacological trickery, we can sample melatonin in your saliva. Um, but that's not obviously sampling it from your brain, right? Your, your brain is wrapped in like this really hefty trash bag that yeah, things, not, not everything in your bloodstream can get it in and out of your brain. Like it, that's, it's called the blood brain barrier and it protects you from getting 
infections in your brain, essentially. Um, but there's, there's lots of things that you can put in your body that won't get in your brain. Um, and so to say for, for us to say, well, in your saliva or in your blood serum, we can test and it looks like that the melatonin productions are about the same. We don't know for a fact that that means that the melatonin is the same in, in your brain. It could possibly be. However, melatonin is a hormone. Um, you know, counter to the FDA's rules, whatever the rules are, they make up new rules every week. Um, but supposedly, if you know, if if it's it exists in nature and it's um, you know. It doesn't have to be manufactured and, and it exists in nature, then supposedly it's not a drug. But of course, testosterone is a drug and estrogen is a drug. And vitamin D3 is a hormone and that's a vitamin. It's not even, that's, that's a supplement. And melatonin is a hormone, but that we just call that a supplement. So that's like try to get those classifications out of your way and just say, okay, what does this hormone melatonin do? Um, and what this hormone melatonin does is it decreases the amount of stress hormones that your a body is making, your adrenals. It decreases how much, how many stress hormones you're making, and it decreases how sensitive your brain is to stress hormones. So the reason it can help with sleep is if you take a bunch of it. And it goes into your brain and your problem with getting to sleep is that you have too much stress hormones. Your brain's too awake. You can block a lot of the effects of the stress hormones in your brain for a while and you'll fall asleep. And oftentimes you can stay asleep. The question is, how much do you take? Well, we don't really know how much is crossing into the brain. Um, so that's, that's its own thing. That's going to vary from person to person, but there's also no way to sample that other than like putting a catheter into somebody's brain and having them take pills and, and check it. And, uh, you know, that research is never going to be done. Uh, that's obviously way too dangerous. Um, so, but the other thing that happens, or, all right, so let me back up. So melatonin is a hormone. And I just told you what dysfunction is. Now, what we know about every other hormone in your body, every every other hormone that we're aware of, that we are aware of, if we give you this hormone, your body will produce less of it. So, if I give a man testosterone, his testicles will produce less testosterone. If I give a woman estrogen, her ovaries will produce less estrogen. If I give somebody cortisol, their adrenals will produce less cortisol. We know this across every single hormone. So melatonin, unfortunately, is made and secreted in the brain, so we can't really test it. So we don't know for sure that it decreases it. But what we do know, and this is from animal studies, is that if we give you give somebody or you give an animal uh, melatonin and you're putting it at, you know, at, dosage, at dosages that their brain would never see, and it's having the effect that you want. It's making them calm or it's an antioxidant or it's making them sleep, whatever you're studying. What we do know is that once you sacrifice those rats and you study their brain, the number of receptors that they have for melatonin has greatly diminished. So what it means is let's say, let's say that you take a one milligram tablet of melatonin. 
And let's say half of that tablet actually gets into your brain. That would be exceptional, but like, let's just say that happens. You get, and you get half of that milligram into your brain all at once. And it just saturates all your melatonin receptors and you fall asleep. And you do this over and over and over and over and over again. And then what will happen is you'll decrease the number of receptors you have for melatonin. So now it doesn't really matter how much you take because there's no place for it to go. There's no receptors for it to bind to. So you keep upping the doses and upping the doses and it doesn't really work anymore and you quit taking it. Well, now your brain doesn't have any chance of producing anything close to what you were taking. So when I talked about the hunter-gatherers that we, that we studied falling asleep three to three and a half hours after the sun went down, they're doing that because of physiological and pharmacolo- or not pharmacological, because of physiological neuro and neurophysiology, neurochemicals in their brains changing, and one of those is melatonin. So from the time the sun goes down until the time the sun comes up and you wake up the next day, your brain might produce about half a milligram of melatonin over that 12-hour period. But if you take a capsule with even one milligram and half of it gets into your brain, you're getting all of that at once. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. So you're going, you're going to, over the long run, like if you're, if you're just taking it now and then, you're using it as a jet lag tool, more power to you, right? As long as you're not, you know, traveling every week. Um, but if you use it, if you use it chronically, you're going to decrease your brain's ability to respond to melatonin and very likely you're decreasing your brain's production of melatonin. So it sounds like addressing the root cause of one's lifestyle and environment can be key for sleep rather than these these sleep band-aids, as it were. I do want to touch briefly on how your thoughts on how eating affects sleep. Do you think it's a problem if people are eating? Because I know a lot of, because I have the other podcast, the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and a lot of people follow one meal a day type pattern where they eat later in the evening. So what are your thoughts on eating and sleep? Is like if you eat right before sleeping, does that impair sleep quality or quantity? The only animal on this planet that we know of that deliberately sleep deprives itself is the human. No other animals do this. And... There's, it, to me, that's pretty convincing evidence that sleep is pretty damn important <laughs> if no other animal on this planet is doing it except us. Now, there's an exception to when an animal will sleep less, and this doesn't necessarily mean it's doing it by choice, but its physiology is making this happen. And there's two times where this will happen. One is if the stress hormones are super high because this animal is actually being hunted. So if you can think of, you know, a a type of prey that's maybe being stalked by a pack of wolves or something, it's not, it's not going to go to sleep when it feels tired, right? It's just going to keep going and going and going. And then when it finally does get some sleep, the second it has enough energy to get up and go again, it's going to get up and go again because worried about getting killed, obviously. The only other time that any animal on this planet sleep deprives themselves is when they're starving. So when you're starving, your blood glucose in your brain gets too low. And that, and once the blood glucose in your brain gets too low, your brain says, Oh shit, we don't have enough blood glucose. Cause there's not, there's only a couple of things your brain can run off of. 
And there's only one that's around most of the time is glucose, unless you're purposefully on a ketotic diet, which is the whole point of the ketotic diet is that ketones can be used as a brain fuel. But put that aside, uh, animals don't go on ketotic diets as far as I know. Uh, so when their blood glucose drops to a certain level, their brain's like, hey, we're about to starve. You need to get up and you need to go find food. Now, one of the things that happens when you get up and you don't, when you get up and you haven't had enough sleep and you're going to find food is your brain's not working as well because the glucose is low, but your brain's also not working as well because it's not as well rested because you didn't get enough sleep. So this leads to riskier and riskier behavior and trying more and more novel things, which is why human beings act like idiots when they, when they're sleep deprived. Um, because you're the part of your brain that makes good decisions and that puts, you know, puts boundaries up for you and make and allows you to predict whether something is a good idea that's likely going to have good consequences or an idea that's likely to have un, you know, unwanted consequences. That is the prefrontal cortex of your brain. That's what's being affected when you're sleep deprived. And then that's like when people are sleep deprived and when people are calorie restricted, they're more likely to have affairs. They're more likely to have work conflict, you know, with their peers or their bosses. They're more likely to be in car accidents. They're like all the stupid things that humans do. And this is because of brain chemistry and, and you can't get around it. So what happens if you have poor insulin sensitivity is you need, a, you need sort of a, very regular refeed of carbohydrates to for your brain not to sense that your carbohydrates are crashing and it doesn't actually matter what your total blood glucose is it just matters how quickly is it changing and so if your physiology gets to a point where your blood glucose even though it may be twice as high as it should be it starts changing very rapidly and it starts going down too quickly your brain will wake you up your body will produce a bunch of stress hormones and you'll wake up and you'll have a hard time sleeping. So those people obviously need some slow absorbing carbs before they go to sleep at night. If they want to have a good chance of going to sleep, um, people who go on like a really, uh, say like a really strict paleo diet or a ketotic diet. Now they're actually having the opposite effect, right? Cause their brain is now running, primarily off of ketones, but, or not primarily, but to a large degree off of ketones, it's still primarily blood glucose, but their brain's still really sensitive to it. They have great insulin sensitivity, but they just don't have much glucose to deal with because they aren't eating carbohydrates or they're not eating significant amounts of carbohydrates. Um, so th those people probably the most important thing for them is to ensure that they have enough fats, medium chain triglycerides that are going to lead to ketone bodies to where their ketone level isn't going to crash and then cause them to wake up in the middle of the night. And then there's everything in between that. <laughs> there's a million variables in between that. So it's not a super simple answer. Um, what I, what I always tell my my private clients. So when I, when I work with people, I work with them for a year, it's an annual program. And the first thing we always work on is sleep. And there's just, unfortunately, there's just a lot of playing around you have to do. Um, you have to figure out what's right for you. And there is no right answer there. It, I can't tell you definitely eat carbs before you go to bed or definitely don't eat carbs before you go to bed or definitely don't eat an hour before you go to bed or definitely eat at least four hours. Like I, I can't say that. Um, 
you know, it, it's rules of thumb, basically. The, and what I see with my clients is at the very beginning of the year, we have to be really, really, really careful about when the time that they're eating, the time that they're exercising, the time that they're working to get them good sleep. Once you're more metabolically flexible and metabolically stable and yes, metabolically durable, you can play around with stuff a lot more. It's like getting, it's like getting fit, right? When you're really out of shape, there's not a whole lot of exercise you can do that, that you're not putting yourself at risk of hurting yourself or overdoing it. Once you're in pretty good shape, you know, and, and at the beginning, you need to be super disciplined, right? It's like if you, if you know you're 40 pounds overweight and you haven't worked out in 10 years and you're like, you need to be really disciplined, but you shouldn't be doing a ton, right? You're going to slowly work your way up and you're just going to be very regimented and very careful and you're going to measure all sorts of stuff. But once you're in, once you're in pretty damn good shape, it's like, why are you going to waste all your time doing that anymore? It's like, you know, for that extra two to 3% of performance, isn't that important unless you're, you know, making a living doing that or something. So that's the best answer I have. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much what I advocate as far as diet goes. I mean, there is no one right diet. You really have to find right. what works for you and supports your chemistry and your body. Yeah. So, and not everybody responds to the diet they want to respond to either. You know, um, I know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't care if my clients are vegans or keto. Like I don't, I don't care. Like whatever you really want to do, but we're going to do some lab testing and some genetic testing. We're going to find out if it's working and if it's not working, you're going to have to just admit to yourself that what you want to eat is more important than your other goals. Um, and it's just the unfortunate reality. It's like, you know, that's why we have the Olympics. We're not all the same, man. There are, like, true. there are people that are just, you know, much better at certain stuff than we are. All right. So you did mention sleep hygiene a little bit back. Okay. So I'll tell you, my, you can rate my sleep hygiene. This is all the crazy things I do. And some, some questions that people did want to know was, do they need to be implementing all of these quote, you know, hacks and things, especially if they do seem to be sleeping well. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on how effective these different things are. Um, so I know like for me, well, starting on the flip side in the morning, when I wake up, I do, you know, bright light exposure. How, how are you doing? How are you doing that? I have a, well, I open all the windows and go outside. And then I have like a, this daylight device thing that creates a very bright light. Like a 30,000 lux thing. And what, and where yeah. is that relative to your eyesight? It's above so that it's, okay. It's like slightly above. Like I'm looking at it right now. It's not on, but um, so that it's like coming. It should. It's it like should, slight. It should be. I'm. I'm sorry. It's ten thousand lux is the number. So it has to be ten thousand lux or higher, and it should be thirty degrees above your line of sight. So coming down onto your eyes, coming down onto your eyes at a thirty degree angle. That's sort of normal morning light. But if you're getting up at 11 a.m. and you're walking outside, <laughs> you're blasting your brain. Uh, that that's uh, a different thing. But okay, go ahead, keep going. I like what, I like I like what you're doing. Okay, okay, so I'm good so far. Um, I'm seeing how. Oh yeah, mine was mine's 10,000 lux. So and it okay. tilts the way it's made to tilt so that you can get the the angle. But now I'm gonna have to measure 30 degrees. Okay. Yes. Okay, caffeine, coffee. I'm super sensitive to coffee and I don't know if that's like because I think I am and then I read genetically that I am so then I am <laughs> but um 
I will have, I'm not making this up, like a spoonful of coffee, like a spoon, just like I just, a spoonful, that's all, like a tablespoon. Like is um, this a spoonful of liquid coffee or like mm-hmm. ground cup? Um, no, like the liquid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like it has like a little bit of a hermetic stress, a hermetic effect. Um, I get nervous about having more coffee, but I do wonder, and that is a big question with caffeine, if maybe it would serve me to have more coffee because then maybe I'd be more awake earlier, you know, and they'd be more likely to fall asleep later. Yeah. Can we, quick question about that. What are your thoughts on coffee? Do you think it actually supports the sleep cycle? If you'll remember earlier when I was talking about how, how caffeine works, you shouldn't have a whole lot of adenosine in your brain um, when you wake up. So you're not really blocking adenosine as much as you're activating adenosine receptors in a different way than adenosine would. So uh, caffeine in the morning is um, something that definitely promotes wakefulness, but it also leads to an increase of stress hormones. So if you're somebody who has um, problems with stress hormones, like chronically, chronically high stress hormones actually make you tired. Um, and they actually make you catabolic instead of anabolic. So I never got through my whole fight or flight story, but you know, when you, when you go into fight or flight, like every, you get better at everything. Like your, you know, like your pupils dilate and you're tight, you're taking in more light and you're taking in more peripheral vision, even though you're hyper-focused on something, your muscles get stronger and faster and your, your brain starts working faster, your conduction from your brain to your body, all of that starts working faster. Your pain threshold goes up, like your your lungs actually open up. You can use more of your lungs, your blood vessels open up, your blood glucose rises and you like you're you're becoming like Superman, right? When you're in deep sleep, it's exactly the opposite. Like none of that stuff is happening and all of that energy is going to restoring your body. When you're not in fight or flight, you're somewhere in between those two. And so somebody, people like us who are owls, we wake up in the morning and we're still a lot closer to that deep sleep state than we are that fight or flight. Like, you know, we're we're only like 2% of the way towards fight or flight. Larks wake up and they're like, yeah, they're, they're 25%, 30% there, right? Like they're like, they get, have good, good high stress hormones already going and their body's responding to them really quickly. So my like my take on caffeine is that if you like caffeine and it makes you feel better and you and you use it in a way to where it doesn't interfere with your sleep later which primarily means you have to stop drinking it pretty early and i mean we've never met but the pictures i've seen of you you seem pretty petite so you probably can't take a whole lot of anything would be my guess without having a pretty large physiological effect from it. So, um, if it makes you jittery and shaky and sweaty, it's probably not doing the right things for you. Um, you would be better off finding, you know, probably some sort of herbal tea that has some, you know, this binding has, you know, chemicals in it that are binding other neuro, uh, or other neuroregulating, um, receptors in your brain to promote weakness that way. Or, you know, for me, if I can, you know, if I can stay disciplined enough, nothing wakes me up faster than just like getting out of bed and going for a walk. 
doesn't have to be a fast walk. It doesn't have to be a hard walk. Like I can listen to music. I can listen to podcasts. I can do listen to nothing. But if I just walk, I get my body moving. I get my stress hormones up. I get a little bit of light therapy. Actually, that makes me more awake than anything. But I'd rather just go make a pot of coffee and then like sit down and have a couple of cups of coffee and then maybe uh, I'll get to my walk later, you know, like or you know get to get to the gym, or whatever. So, um, if if you don't like it, I would say don't use it. If it doesn't feel good to you, I'd say don't use it. Look for herbal teas. You might do better with nicotine, like nicotine mints or nicotine gums. You'll hear a lot about that being addictive. It's not true. It's only addictive. It's only addictive if it's uh, inhaled. It's only highly addictive if, it, if it's inhaled. If you're using the gums and mints that are the the, the effects, you know, like chemically, it's nowhere near the same effect. But the effects to your alertness and memory and thought process and all that stuff is it's pretty similar between nicotine and caffeine. And that's why they had cigarette breaks at work and then coffee breaks and, and cigarettes. And like people either went and got coffee, they went and got cigarettes, kind of well, choose your poison, whichever one people like the best. But it, you know, if, if you don't like it, don't use it. I mean, I, that's, there's a reason you're not liking it. And there's, the body is way too damn complex. And anybody who tells you they understand it is full of shit because I mean, there's, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of things going on that we don't even know about. Um, and there's thousands and thousands of things going on that we kind of know something about. Uh, like we know like, you know, two fifths of five eighths of almost nothing. Okay. I'm so glad you brought up some of those things. Okay. So rapid fire follow-ups just based on what you just said, um, nicotine patches, would those be an option? Um, man, that's a good question. I've never, I've, I've never studied those. Um, they, it would be very similar. Um, it's going through more tissues. So that's probably going into lymphatics. Where's your, so that's going to, that's going to, it's going to take longer to reach your cells and it's going to last longer than like a mint or gum. Okay. Reason I thought about that is because another thing I do with the coffee that I've recently started doing is I actually, in lieu of drinking it, I mean, I still might have like a, a tablespoon, but I, I splash it on my face and I've actually noticed a stimulating effect from it. Especially if it's hot. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not, it's cold. <laughs> I cold brew it. Um, I cold brew it actually with aspirin and it wouldn't, I'm just kind of crazy. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'm, I could go on a whole tangent about aspirin. I wish it, I would, if, I think if it didn't have a, um, you know, if it wasn't hard on the gut, yeah. I think it would be like a wonder, like I could just promote it 24 seven. I do, I do the 81 milligram, you know, enteric coated one. And I, and I do it for the same reason to, to extend the half-life of caffeine. And that's another thing we didn't talk about that I meant to say at the beginning. Oh, it extends the half. I wasn't even doing it for that reason. I was doing it for the anti-inflammatory effects, but, um, oh, yeah. oh, true. Because that, oh, like the ECA, the, the yeah. ECA yeah, stack. Yeah. That's the reason for the, that's the reason for the, that's the reason for the A and the ECA stack is because it makes caffeine last longer. It extends the half-life yeah. of it. Um, but, uh, that's something that I didn't cover when, uh, caffeine, the riskiest thing about caffeine is that the half-life of that. So, and, and, you know, the physiology world, half-life is if I give you a hundred of something, 
at the half-life, you're only going to have 50 of that in your body. And then at the next half-life, you're going to have 25 of that in your body, right? And that's how that's, and it's, a, it's a calculatable uh, period of time. And the half-life for caffeine is all over the map with people. Um, it has a ton to do with your hormonal state. It has a ton to do with your adrenal state. It has a ton to do with your nutritional state. It has a ton to do with how much you exercise, with your thyroid function, like just about everything. Um, there are some people that the half-life for caffeine is like 36 hours in their body. And there's other people that's like two. The standard is somewhere around six hours. Um, and then another interesting thing, you, 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 know, you mentioned hormesis like a hormetic curve meaning that you take you take so you take some of something and it's good and you take more and it's better and you take more and it's better and then at some point you take so much that it actually gets worse and then the more you take the worse it gets interesting the peak for caffeine is 200 milligrams which also coincidentally was the eca stack right um and once you go over 200 milligrams, it actually starts having a counterproductive effect on your memory and your focus and your alertness and all the stuff that people are taking it for. And I have a conspiracy theorist theory, and I'm not I a con love conspiracy. I'm theory. not a I'm not a conspiracy <laughs> theorist at all. But I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I love conspiracy theories. So I, I love them too. They're usually entertaining. This one's kind of lame, but I was actually I was actually waiting in a lobby with another sleep doctor and we were going to the symposium. We we're both lecturing. We're waiting for the bus to come get us or whatever van whatever. And there's a Starbucks right in the lobby and they have their menus and on their menus, they're telling like how many calories are in and everything. And then how much caffeine is in all of them. And I don't, I don't even go to Starbucks. I don't like their coffee, um, but whatever all the fancy names like Mocha, Grande, Frappuccino, Cricket, whatever the hell, Caramelata <laughs> thing. Adiato, just that Adiato yeah. to the end. And it was like, I don't, I can't remember the number. Uh, I want to say it was like 1130 calories and it had 600 milligrams of caffeine in it, which is three times what you should have. So my theory is that if you start drinking a cup of that coffee, you're going to start feeling pretty good for a while. And then you're going to feel like crap and you're going to want another cup of coffee. Oh, I don't find that um, far-fetched. And then you put a lot of sugar in it on top of that and you get a blood glucose crash and you're on a caffeine crash. You're going to go back for more caffeine and more sugar. Yep. No, Starbucks has got it made. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and then the other rapid fire question follow-up. Actually, there's two. Um, you, your walk situation that I forgot something, part of my my daily hygiene. My alternative to caffeine, cold showers. Do you take cold showers? I, I've been taking nothing but cold showers for probably 30 years. Oh, wait, I'm talking to a seal. What am I? <laughs> oh, and, I know. I mean, I... I I mean, not all, actually, I, I did, one of my SEAL buddies was at my house. Uh, I just moved into a new place and he was helping me do some stuff. This was just like two weeks ago. Um, and he's a lot younger than I am. It's a different generation of SEAL. I actually know him from being the SEAL doctor when he was a SEAL. And he was at my house helping me out. And, and I, I got out of the, I, I 
he took a shower first and then I went to take a shower after him. And this is like a little bungalow house. I live in a small place. And, um, uh, and the bathroom was all steamed up and I was like, you take hot showers. And he's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I like, I would have never guessed that. And, what is and I, concept? I just assumed that all seals were like me and that, um, I just thought it had something to do with being in such cold water for so long that like the sensitivity to cold water is really gone for me. So like cold showers are not even kind of unpleasant for me. Like they don't bother me at all, but they lower my body temperature and they cool me off. And I live in Austin and, you know, and so like, I'd, I prefer to take a cold shower. I'd like, it feels better. And I'm usually taking a shower before I'm going to bed. And one of the cues for your body being ready to go to sleep is a lower lower body temperature, your, your body temperature drops about one degree when you're right around the time you're starting to fall asleep. So anyways, I'm, I'm totally messing up your sleep hygiene thing and your rapid fire questions. Sorry, go like restructure me, reel me back in, reel me back in. No, 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 no. I love it. Let me just say now I want to switch to all cold showers. I, I mean, I do the hot shower and then I do the cold blast. Got it. But now I kind of want to do all cold. <sighs> love it. Hi guys. One of the things that can affect sleep is if you are reacting negatively to the foods that you're eating. And it can be really, really hard to figure out what certain compounds and foods you might be reacting to. I mean, there are just so many things. Histamines, amines, oxalates, nightshades, so many more. That's why I created an app called Food Sense. Honestly, I created it for me because I was so tired of trying to figure out what I was reacting to. FoodSense is a catalog of 300 plus foods and it lists their general amounts of various compounds that may be causing problems for your personal digestive and immune system. And particularly of note, it includes histamine content, which that can especially be stimulating for a lot of people and may be interfering with sleep. It's available in the iTunes store and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. The last rapid fire was CBD, which is not a rapid fire question, oh. but... um. <laughs> I, I mean, I've heard like in small effects, it's actually stimulating. So I wonder if it could have a place like, sm you know, small dosage that works for the individual in the morning and then maybe a larger dosage at night too. Yeah. I mean, CBD is fascinating. Um, I've been, I've been uh, studying it. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm studying it in earnest. Like I'm not trying to be a world-class expert on it, but um, I've been studying it for, you know, probably 10 years or something. Um, and it's primarily because California passed that medicinal marijuana law. And I was, I was a doctor at the time and that kind of came out while I was a young doctor. And I thought, and so it, it was just a curiosity to me. Um, I came from, I come from a family with like a lot of drug addicts and stuff. So I've always been like very anti, um, drugs for myself, but, um, I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not anti marijuana at all. I think it's uh, I think it's ridiculous. It's even considered a drug. Um, but so the, the interesting thing, like when I was saying earlier is that there's thousands of things that we don't even know about. And then there's thousands of things that we kind of know about. Well, CBD is one of the things that we kind of know about. And um, you know, cannabinoid receptors were found before they realized that cannabis bound cannabinoid receptors. And that's how they ended up being called cannabinoid receptors. So an, an endogenous cannabinoid, something that your body is making 
a chemical that your body is making that binds a cannabinoid receptor is obviously different than what's coming from the, you know, from a plant. Um, and you know, whether you're eating it or inhaling it or whatever. So I, I don't think there's enough great science, um, on the sleep aspect. There's some pretty, um, there's some pretty high level stuff about like what, what regions of your brain get activated and would, and take up less glucose, you know, which, which region of your brain become more active and which regions become less active. And that seems to be, um, from what I remember kind of broken up until it sort of like three different categories. So if we take like our, our owls and our larks, there's like, you know, there's another one in there and, and not everybody. So not everybody has the same number of CBD receptors. There's more than one type of CBD receptor on, and I'm not even going to guess. I mean, I know there's at least like six or eight or something. There could be 50 for all I know. I, um, I can't remember there. Uh, but, um, I, I would say it's a lot like the nutrition, give it a shot, see if it works. Um, I've used CBDs, uh, with my, one of my oldest son who's in college, uh, for anxiety and it seemed to work pretty well for him. And he thought he slept better. I have lots of, uh, lots of adult clients that use CBD, um, as an adjunct to a sleep aid. Um, but the research that I have, the, the only um, cautionary research that I have seen on it is that um, your sensitivity to CBD decreases fairly rapidly. So you'll, you'll need progressively more. But as we've talked about with a few other things, it's also a hormetic curve. So if you take too much, it can actually become a stimulant. So the short answer is I don't know, uh, but it's something that I think is worth tinkering around with. The THC component is definitely very, very consistently uh, that helps people fall asleep. It distorts the quality of their sleep. And the tolerance to that goes up super fast. Like within a month, you need 10 times more than what you started with. Um, and then it eventually, it eventually just becomes, you know, non-effective because you would, you would just have to take way too much of it and it's having way too many different physiological effects. So if you're, if anybody's using a CBD product that has THC in it, I just caution them to, to use as little THC as possible. Uh, the two do work better together. Um, but if you, if you don't have, uh, you know, if you're relying on the THC to get you to sleep, then you're going to be disappointed really quickly. Okay. So something to experiment with. I've been experimenting with it for about probably a month now. And I, I really like, I think, I think once I find like the right dosing for me, I really like the effects it has. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've tried it myself. I get like, I can't even tell, I can't even tell I've taken it. I, I, maybe I don't have any CBD receptors. I also like, I also tried smoking pot a couple of times in my life and I just had no, 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 no enjoyment of it whatsoever. It's like, I don't know why anyone would do this. Like just made me tired. That's it. <laughs> made my mouth dry and made me tired and, my brain is going really slow. That's all that happens to me. I don't like, I don't know. Didn't like it. It seems like, I don't know. Sometimes I've tried it and it has a very distinct, like 
very quick effect, very obvious, and sometimes not really. So I, it's, it's hard to know. There's so many factors with so many things. So the other morning thing I do is I turn on my, like my Juve red light device. Mm-hmm. And I really like the red light. I mean, I've heard that it, the red light spectrum, it would be mimicking the rising and setting sun. So using it in the morning and evening, I don't know how you feel about that. I don't have an educated opinion on that. I mean, it, it, it seems, it seems logical. I haven't, I haven't read any of the literature on red light itself. If you're talking about near IR or fire or far IR. It's red, it's red and, um, and IR. And, and IR near, near. near, So it's near and it's red. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I could definitely see that because that's, um, uh, the near IR is, is, is a great, um, uh, you know, anti, anti-inflammatory and immune response elevating. So you would get like more lymphatic flow and all that stuff. So I could see that. I, I could definitely buy into that working. I mean, I, I love, I love the saunas with the, with the near and the far IR, like the, they're my patients and my clients who use those things. It, it's probably one of the biggest interventions, if not the biggest intervention for over half of my clients. Uh, is getting just their daily sauna treatment with a near and a far, uh, in those different cycles. And I, would, it's something I'd have to review. I haven't, I haven't read the, the papers on that in over a year, but they, you know, like it's, it's a cyclical thing to where you have like a peak of near IR, then just a, a peak of red and then a peak of far. And then there, there's, yeah they kind of overlay each other and there's some synchronicity to it that um, seems to work really well. Yeah. Yeah. I do know the wavelengths are as far as how they affect the body from the literature I've seen. It's very specific. Yeah. Like you think that you could just kind of get in the range and get something from it, but they, I've looked at these charts and it's like only at these like certain points. Is it actually, yeah, you know, it's, having it's the very, effect? very narrow and, and it's all about, and, and it's, you know, it's a hundred percent about wavelength and you think, you know, you think of like, um, well, it's just red light. Like, you know, that's whatever, 437 nanometers or whatever the hell it is. You know, it's like, that's, it's just the right around there. It's, but you know, near IR, you can't see and far IR, you can't see. So it's like, it's like, all right, well, that's a, that's kind of a different thing. Like, what do you do with that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating research. It's, it's one of the, it's one of my, my favorite things to tinker around with right now and, and read about, um, I, I, I wouldn't call myself an expert on it, but it's, it's, um, I, I, I'm a firm believer that there's huge benefits to that. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get 
get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase Asana, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time. That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful 
for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a Juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands. And it is so incredibly easy. It's called melanieavalonscloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. 
I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. So I'll come right back to that briefly, but then, so for the bulk of the day, I do practice intermittent fasting. So I do the later eating window. So that's my day. I find that it supports my alertness for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so then power through the day, try to do lots of physical activity, movement, active exercise. I'm not like a big gym goer, but I like to be constantly moving, um, which I find really important. And then come evening, this is where all the, the real hardcore sleep hygiene starts coming in. So starting around like when the sun is still up, but I feel like it's not, it shouldn't be super, it's not super bright. I put on blue blocking glasses that are clear so they don't actually change Mm -hmm. the color. I have a, I have a, I have a, um, a whole like protocol. So I put on first the the blue blocking ones that block 90% of blue light, but they're clear. So they don't change the color of my surroundings. Then I transition to like yellow ones that block even more and also make things look less blue. And then right before I go to bed, I put on those. I don't know if you have the, um, what do they call it? The true dark, like the red ones. No, I don't. And, um, I know, I know okay, what they are, but I don't have them. Yeah. So I put those on right at the end and those have a very pronounced effect on me. They just, they block all blue. They make everything look really red. And I find those really, really, um, effective. I do, I do I have a sauna. So I have a sunlight and far infrared. Yes. So I do that in the evening. Do you do you um, think it matters when the sauna treatment is done? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, I've I've seen the uh, yeah. I mean, and and most of the research I've read was given to me by Sunline. And if you go to like their sleep protocol in there, you can see what I was talking about. With they they'll actually show you um, on like a like a waveform diagram of like when, when you're getting IR or like when you're getting near and when you're getting far and and how they're overlapping over the time period that you're in there. Does the solo have like the little iPad mat mounted in it where you can do the programs? Not, not an iPad mounted. Okay. That would be really nice. It has like a, um, this little, I mean this unit where you, so it's not an iPad, but it's like a tablet, like attached to the wall where you, you select your different protocols and stuff. Did not have that. It does not. Okay. No. I've never, I've never been in one of the solos. I've only been in like the two and three man ones. So. Okay. Yeah. It looks like a dome type thing that you lay in. Oh, that one. Um, oh, that one. Okay. Okay. I was thinking the solo was the one person one. Okay. Yeah. 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 I know what you mean. Yeah, so you lay in yeah. it, and then and it has like the light therapy stuff. I like it. I'm looking at it now. <laughs> um, so I do that. I find that really effective. And then, so when it's night, like I said, I get kind of productive, like seven to ten. But after I've done all my work, I have my lights all turned to red hues, which creates a really lovely look. Turn on my juve again with the red light. And wine, alcohol, that's not a quick question, I know. But um, 
I've, I mean, I, I'm a big proponent of wine for health. Um, historically, I drank more wine in the evening. Now I have substantially less. Now I only drink like organic dry farm wines, which I find really actually important. I don't know what your thoughts are on alcohol and sleep. And I know that's a big question. Two questions. Can a person do you think have, you know, alcohol in their lifestyle and support a healthy sleep rhythm? So I, I have no problem with uh, people drinking alcohol. And this kind of ties into a question that we haven't gotten to that I know uh, your readers wanted to cover is like, if I don't feel like I have any sleep problems, should I be stressing about my sleep problems? Or should I be stressing about whether I'm getting good sleep? Absolutely not. <laughs> There's lots of other stuff to worry about. Uh, it's like saying, you know, Am I, if I'm not fat, should I be worried that maybe I am fat and I just, I'm not seeing it. It's like, no, if, if you, if you feel like you're sleeping well and you have good energy and your life's working out, like don't, don't get too geeky about this. Um, I would just say that as you're sort of, as you start noticing what most people call aging, uh, like I'm just getting really aging is what getting dumber, fatter, slower, colder, weaker, um, and being in a little more pain. So like it's, it's, as that part of life kind of starts creeping up on you, I would say sleep is your go-to thing. Uh, there's some interesting studies about, I mean, it was done with fruit flies, but whole, whole diatribe we won't get into, uh, that there's some reason to believe that, you know, we're just like, we kind of always thought like we're, we're pretty bulletproof when we're young. Uh, you know, our hormones are really high or gut biome is totally different. Like what we absorb, how much rest we need, how quickly we repair, like everything's is different when we're younger. And, uh, nutrition seems to be one of those, uh, things as well. Um, right around 40 it seems like nutrition becomes of, of paramount importance and you know five years before you could get away with eating burgers and fries and drinking beer and, and being lean and you can't do that anymore five years later um that's a whole different diatribe but sleep sleep is the same way like every everybody performs better with 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 uh you know their ideal level of sleep which like i said doesn't vary very much it doesn't vary significantly it's 30 minutes one way or the other, and obviously, if you if you like if you overextend yourself and you work way harder than you usually work, either with your brain or your body, and you're really tired, you're going to need more sleep. You know, if you're training to be an Olympian, you're going to need more sleep. Like, I mean, that that that's obvious. You're doing more than than people ordinarily do. Um, but as far as the alcohol goes, like, I have no I have no problem with alcohol. I mean, alcohol has, um, uh, like I said, it, it has negative impacts on, on your sleep architecture. But when I say that I'm talking about people who are using alcohol as their primary sleep aid. So one of the things that alcohol is really good at is decreasing stress hormones. It just, it decreases your cognitive it, like your emotional and cognitive uh, perception of how stressful your environment is which has its own benefits whether or not you know like even if your stress hormones stay the same the way your body is dealing or the way your brain is dealing with those stress hormones is not different um uh i i would recommend so if anybody had um like insulin sensitivity issues i would say you know get the purest type of alcohol you could possibly get. Right. 
Um, so drink probably liquor and, and soda water as opposed to beer or wine, um, especially a white wine or something that would have a lot of uh, sugar in it. Um, people who have, um, you know, there are people who have sensitivities to tannins and other, um, you know, other things that are in the skin of the grapes that end up in, in the wine. Um, all of the pycnogenols and uh, there's like hundreds of different little chemicals in there. And some people don't process those very well And red wine. This isn't meant to be a, a liquor conversation, but the overall is uh, a cup, a couple of drinks is, I think is fine. Um, and, uh, the rule of thumb is basically as far away from bedtime as possible. Um, which doesn't mean start drinking the minute you wake up. It's just like, you know, it's late and as late, you know, as early in the day as it's reasonable to kind of get your wine down, your wine down and your wine with the D your wine down. Um, uh, as early in the evening as you could do that, the better. And then I would also, I also always tell people to have at least 16 ounces of water for every alcoholic drink. Um, just because it does dehydrate you. And that's one of the reasons, um, that people have poor sleep quality when they're, uh, when they drink, um, it's because of the dehydration and it'll, if you're, somebody who's prone to be groggy even after a couple of drinks or something the next day, it helps a lot with that as well. Okay. I like that answer. I like that answer. <laughs> I, yeah. I tend to, I start my, my dinner one meal a day protocol with, with the wine rather than having it at the end. So it does tend to be, mm -hmm. you know, substantially before I go to bed. So love hearing Good. that. And then the, um, when I actually go to bed, so the, the dark red glasses are on, I um I turn off my Wi-Fi. Not we don't have to go on a whole EMF Wi-Fi tangent, but I turn off my Wi-Fi, my actual bed. I turn down the thermometer or the temperature to like I like it at like sixty-four degrees, which has I got my first bill. I just moved to Atlanta and I just got my first energy bill. Oh my goodness! And it's summer right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was ridiculous. I I called my mom. I was like, Mom, is this normal? But um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I do make it super cold. I actually, I also have a chili pad, which I'm obsessed with. Oh my goodness. It's amazing. Um, so that I have one of those as well. Oh, you use one? Yeah. I will never go back. Like, where was this my whole life? Um, basically for listeners, it's a pad that you put on your bed and it uses water to, you can make it hot too, but who would want that? Yeah. <laughs> um, keeps you cold. Well, hot, hot's actually better for naps. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. And we didn't even talk about naps. We'll have to save that for no, next episode. We'll have to save that for next round. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I have I have a Wi-Fi EMF blocking canopy, which I know some people think is crazy, but I've definitely noticed a difference with it. Um, I have a grounding mat. I have blackout curtains. I use earplugs. I have a sleep mask. I think that might be it. So... You can rate my sleep hygiene, and what would and what would you recommend for sleep hygiene for others? Oh, and then like I do like gratitude um, habits and stuff. So and you take dark parsley sleep remedy. Oh my goodness! I left out the main one. I left out the main one. I did until my bottle ran out like two days ago, and there and it's uh, okay. not available right now. 
No, we we uh, we just got we just got another uh, batch like today. Oh, thank goodness! Yeah. Thank goodness! Yeah, that was my final question. Was <laughs> the sleep remedy? Um, yeah. I can't believe I left that out. <laughs> yep, that's like the best. That's the whole reason I wanted to have you on. <laughs> well, what? <laughs> Two hours later. Oh my goodness! <laughs> what I would say about your sleep routine is that no, that that you are. I, I'm actually going to start using you as the example. Um, like you are the you're you're the premier example of of what I tell people all the time is that the number one factor for getting good sleep is believing that sleep is very important and and making a priority. With everything you said, it's it, you know you'd have like there, there's there's no way to contest whether or not you consider sleep to be a priority with all the stuff that you've done. Once you have convinced yourself that sleep is super important, and one of the ways I recommend people do this, if, if, if nobody on this podcast gets anything out of this or tries anything we've said, the one thing I would like at least one person to do is a seven-day uh, sleep challenge, right? Everybody has 30-day challenges and 90-day challenges. It's seven days, right? Seven consecutive days. You make, and you, it's going to take you like some time to prep for this. It'll take you a couple of weeks kind of to get ready because you're going to have to move your schedule around and have people maybe pick up your kids and crap. Who knows? But if you make sleep your number one priority for seven days, you will believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that sleep is the most important thing for your health. Um, and I'm not saying that you have to sleep all day. I'm just having, I'm just saying that you're focused on it 100%. So, um, if people can convince themselves that they need sleep and they have a computer, they don't need me. Like they can get on there. I mean, there's a billion articles. They can read about all different kinds of sleep hygiene. They can read about all different kinds of rituals and all kinds of devices. And as long as it's working, go for it. But I like to simplify sleep hygiene down to two things. There's only, there's really only two things to sleep hygiene and all we're essentially trying to recreate or all we're really trying to do is to recreate our ancestral conditions. So you block the light, you block the blue light in your eyes three to three and a half hours before you want to go to sleep. That's the ideal. Now, you can do it with glasses like you're talking about. That's the simplest solution. Then you can move up to different light bulbs in your house, and then you can move to three different levels of glasses, which I've never heard before in my life. So you're the winner there. Like, that's amazing. Um, you, can, like, you can take that as far as you want it, right? Um, the, the blackout is a sensory thing. The cool, I, uh, we'll, we'll add the cool in there, but the 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 coolness. So ancestrally, the sun went down, the light changed in your eyes. You can, you can make that light change in your eyes right now. Like every adult on this planet has the power to do that, whether it's just buying glasses or turning off the damn lights in their house and using candles or whatever it takes, but like get rid of the blue light in your eyes. But about three hours before you go to bed, start decreasing that, taking it down, Thomas, nothing. That leads to a ton of physiological changes in your brain, which we talked about. One of those is the production of melatonin, which is really all my product does is give you all the, all the ingredients to make melatonin in your brain and 
very, very slight dusting of melatonin. And then another thing that happens is I told you about the neuropeptide GABA. GABA increases in your brain. And what GABA does is it slows down your neocortex, which is the, what we think of when we see a picture of a human brain. The part has all the wrinkles all over it and that, that shape. Um, that's how we interact with our environment. That's what that part of our brain does. That's what makes us the smartest animals on the planet. It's because we have all, like, you know, there's so much meaning in everything we see and everything we hear and everything we feel and everything we touch. And, and the GABA's job is to diminish how much our neocortex is interacting with our environment. So if you get rid of the light, then you start getting rid of the sensory, right? So the EMF is the sensory, which is one of the reasons that EMF tent works for you. The light coming through your windows, even if it's even if you have your on your blue blocking glasses, that's still a sensory. That's still an interaction with the environment. Whereas if there's darkness in there, there's nothing to interact with, right? Um, the so if any if you've ever had the experience of being super tired and all you want to do is go home and go to sleep. And one of your friends talks you into like going to happy hour and you have a couple of drinks. You should be more tired because now you've just drank alcohol, which should make you more sleepy. But now you're feeling wide awake and you're wide awake because you've completely overcome the GABA pathway, like that GABAergic pathway that's slowing down your brain. Your brain is actually accelerating. You're paying more attention to your environment paying your like it's loud you're having to try hard to listen you're talking louder there's you know, like you you know you might be interested in the goings-ons of other people or members of the opposite sex or the television or whatever so there's all sorts of things going on um that are stimulating your brain and that you're overcoming that so even if you were wearing blue blocking glasses you're not going to feel sleepy because you've You've overdone, you've overstimulated and overpowered the GABAergic system, GABAergic system, I think it's called actually. Um, so those are the really, those are really the only two things going on. Decrease the amount of intensity of interaction with your environment. So you can't wear blue blocking glasses, keep your house really cool, have an EMF tent, like do all of this stuff. But sit at your computer with efflux going on and work on like a really stressful work project until 9.59 and then go get in bed at 10 o'clock and go, like, why am I not asleep at 10.30? It's not going to work because that's the GABA pathway. So you have, to, you have to embrace both. Don't stimulate your brain. Decrease all stimulation to you and your brain. And decrease the light in your eyes. That's sleep hygiene. That's really all it is. There's a million little variables on how to do that. There's a million little gimmicks and, and products and so forth to help you do that. But that's all, it, that's all they're doing. The only additional thing that you do um, that, I, that I didn't talk about is because, of course, um, HVAC hasn't existed all that long on the planet relative to human existence our body temperatures do do go down once the sun goes down. And um, like I said earlier, one of the cues for your body and brain really wanting to be asleep is a slightly lower body temperature. So sleeping in a cool environment and you're at the very, you're, you're at the bottom end of all the research, which is 64 to 68 degrees is the ideal sleeping temperature. So I'd say you're doing everything bang on. Um, 
And hopefully you sleep well. Like we, we didn't even talk about that. Like <laughs> you say you do all these things, but like, yeah, I mean, besides sleeping from two to 11, I mean, how do you sleep? I think, I think my main issue with sleep is that I am constantly more just worried about if I'm going to sleep. So it's like a mental thing. And then judging myself about going to bed late and sleeping in late. Um, I think those are probably the worst factors for me. And also really depends on like my state of digestion I found is huge. It's really interesting though, hearing all of that, I can see now how one can make the argument that something like meditation could, you know, if somebody was really in tune with it, could replace all of these things, which is meditation, because if they could get their brain to not react to stressors, then, I mean, it's like the one, one size fits all solution in a way, but it's just so hard for people to get there with that. I, I haven't been able to get there personally. I want to back up and I want to answer a question that you sent me over email that we didn't talk about. Um, just because I think this is, I think this is the most important question of, of all the questions we're going to answer in this podcast. Oh, I'm super excited to hear. The answer to what do you do when you can't fall back asleep? Right. So that's, that's the big one. Um, as I told you, a lot of people can exhaust themselves to the point where their brain's just like, dude, you're going to sleep whether you want to or not. Bam. And then go through a sleep cycle and then they wake up and then they can't go back to sleep. Stress hormones, right? There could be other reasons behind that. But here's my recipe, um, for the sleep, for the sleep hygiene. So I told you, there's only two principles, decrease the light, decrease the stimulation. The practical aspect of that is you set an alarm clock that says, this is my time to start getting ready to go to bed, alarm clock, right? So it's it goes off an hour, hour and a half, whatever you choose before you go to bed. Like this is where, like I'm really going to start taking my bedtime preparations seriously once this goes off. Now, this is exactly the same as your morning alarm clock. It's no, it's no more negotiable. It's like if, if you have to set your alarm clock to get up at 7 o'clock to be to work on time at 8 o'clock, you don't get to sleep into 7.30 or 8 o'clock just because you want to, right? Like it's important. So it's just, it's just as equally as important. And if you want to just watch one more episode of your show or, um, you know, whatever like there's just some i don't do any of that because i find it too right. stimulating but, but there's people who are just like oh just one more episode and then i say okay. and i say okay here's the rule don't do anything don't stay awake for anything that you wouldn't get up early for so oh, I like so that. if if you say i just want to watch one more episode i say well just go to sleep and then set your alarm clock an hour early and wake up an hour early and watch that extra episode. Of course, nobody's going to do that. So here's, so the alarm clock is the key for this. And I'm like, I'm fortunate enough in my life to where I don't need an alarm clock. I, I go to bed when I go to bed, I wake up when I wake up. Um, most of the world doesn't like that. And I realize that. So the way this works is you set an alarm clock. Now it's time to start getting ready for bed. And then there's a time to go to bed and you go to bed just like you do anything else, just as discipline, like you go to bed when you're supposed to go to bed, just like you make your little kids go to bed when they're supposed to go to bed, like you go to bed. 
And then you lay in bed and you meditate and you relax and you breathe and you do progressive muscle relaxation or whatever it is. You, I don't care. Listen to an app. You listen to guided meditation, whatever it is that you do that helps you wind down if you need that and you fall asleep. Now, the second part is your morning alarm is in your, it's in your, it's in your drawer. It's under a towel. It's under your bed. It's whatever. You can't see it. You can't have a clock in your room, not because of the EMF, because, but because you don't ever want to know what time it is, because it doesn't matter what time it is. While you were awake, while you were alert, while you were smart, while you were making conscious decisions on how to improve your life, you decided you needed to sleep during this block of time. Renegotiating that in the middle of the night when you wake up sleep deprived is not a good idea, right? It's like forming a business plan and then saying, let's get drunk and reevaluate the business plan. Because your brain's not working very well. So when you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't look and see what time it is. If you have to go to the bathroom, get up and go to the bathroom. Use as little light as possible. Get back in bed, lay back down, and just say, I'm going to lay here, and I'm going to breathe, or I'm going to meditate, or I'm going to do whatever my calming thing is. I'm going to lay here until my alarm clock goes off. And if your alarm clock goes off 15 minutes later great. You got like 15 minutes more of meditation and relaxation. You're probably going to feel better. If your alarm clock's not going to go for another three or four hours, you're going to fall back asleep. But I can almost guarantee you that if you wake up in the middle of the night and you go to the bathroom, you come back and you look at your clock and you see what time it is and you get back in your bed and you start thinking, man, I'm really not all that sleepy and I got to get up at this time. And if I could fall asleep in the next 36 minutes, then I could get this much sleep. And now you've, you're actually creating more stress hormones. You're making your brain awake. So you never know what time it is because it doesn't matter. There's an alarm clock to tell you when to go to get ready for bed. There's an alarm clock to say when you go to bed. There's an alarm clock to say when you wake, when you get out of bed. And, you, and the time doesn't matter. Like you set that, you calculate that time out well in advance and you never need to see it. If the noise isn't there, you don't need to do it. That's revolutionary. <laughs> I don't think I've like actually heard that idea. I'm doing that tonight. Right. I'm excited. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm really excited. Um, oh, wow. Okay. I'm like really excited at this moment. And now I also want to set up, I have a clock that is like the daylight clock that does right. the light to yeah. wake you up. I haven't installed it yet. Oh, wow. I'm so motivated right now and I feel really good. Okay. So back to the question about the sleep remedy. How does it work? Lynn listeners, I, I will say it, do, it does work. It is amazing. Like I said, I've been taking it since it was called Sleep Cocktail. Greatest marketing name ever. <laughs> That's why you don't put a doctor in charge of building any kind of marketing campaign. Like that was, but the SEALs called it Doc Parsley's Cocktail. Like you take, you take the Doc Parsley Cocktail. So we just, we just went with that. Yeah. Cause they were, they were the reason I made it anyway. Sure. They just gave me so much crap about having to go buy all the separate ingredients everywhere. And it was so expensive. And so, so we formed it and went with a terrible name and reformulated it. But so again, the sleep hygiene part where I talked about blue light decreasing, changing a bunch of neurochemicals in your brain. Uh, when I do lectures, I often talk about the tryptophan coma that people talk about or think about with uh, related to Thanksgiving and turkey. Um, turkey doesn't have any more tryptophan in it than any other meat, but we just don't tend to overeat other meats as much as we do turkey on Thanksgiving. So that's why it's associated with that. So um, you eat a bunch of tryptophan, 
tryptophan becomes 5-hydroxytryptophan. 5-hydroxytryptophan, with the help of vitamin D3 and magnesium, can become serotonin. And then serotonin becomes melatonin. And then melatonin does a thousand other things in your brain. But one of the things, one of the main things that it does is it decreases your brain sensitivity to stress hormones, which is kind of like slowing down your brain, slowing down your interaction with the world. And then it leads to a, a release of the neuropeptide called GABA, which is then literally going around and kind of slowing down your brain and making it harder for your brain to interact with the environment. That's all that's in my supplement. So like there's, there's no magic, there's no tricks. Um, you know, the idea was obviously when guys were on Ambien and they were addicted to Ambien, like they were taking, you know, the steel mentality of one is good, two is great. And three is fantastic. Right. So, uh, they were taking two or three times recommended dosage. They're, you know, drinking that, you know, taking out with, you know, three or four cocktails and then they're getting like three or four hours of sleep and then popping up and going to work and feeling like crap, big surprise. Um, but yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't just take their ambient away and say, don't drink and just suck it up. Right. Like I had to give them something. So, um, like my hypothesis, my philosophy on it was just, all right, what happens from the time the sun goes down until you actually fall asleep? Well, it's the production of, what I just said and like those pathways, it's like, all right, well, how can we support that? Well, we just make sure that all that's there. Like, so we just super concentrate everything in your brain that would have concentrated in your brain. Had you spent three hours getting ready for bed? Um, and that's why I say nothing in there lasts very long. I mean, it's just, um, yeah, it just, the you know the, the, it's all stuff that's already in your body um so it just all gets absorbed it ends up in your kidney and in your you know bladder and your colon like within three or four hours uh the ph gaba that was in there was just a form of gaba that i added um right before i started making the product somebody introduced me to it i wasn't even using that with the seals um but it crossed the blood brain barrier better so I said, why not? All right, we'll use that. That's fine. Uh, we weren't using as good of a magnesium as we use now. So whatever. So that, I mean, that that's really all there is to it is like, I'm going to give you all of those substrate. There's tryptophan in there. There's 5-hydroxytryptophan in there. There's vitamin D3 in there. There's magnesium in there. There's a little bit of melatonin in there. There's GABA in there. And now because... Um, because it's available and the science is good on it, there's an amino acid called L-theanine, which helps GABA do its job. So it potentiates, it makes GABA more effective in your brain and your body. Um, so that's a new ingredient with this new formulation. Um, you know, we were, we were doing that back then as well. Um, but I couldn't afford to put that in the original product. And then there's another product that was super, super expensive when I first started making this. I mean, I would have had to charge like $300 a box to make a profit. This stuff was so expensive for this one ingredient and it's called phosphatidylserine. But now that's really common and easy to get. It's still fairly expensive as far as ingredients go, but um, we added that and the, and the research on that is pretty clear that it, it decreases um, cortisol production. So again, it decreases stress hormones and that's really for more for the population that's having problems falling asleep because of stress hormones. Um, and it's, it's not a, it, you know, it's a pretty modest dose of that. Um, 
just because some people are really sensitive. I don't want to make anyone groggy, but it's just, it kind of just like a little added boost, you know, will decrease, will help you decrease your stress hormones a little bit. Um, and that's, that's the new formulation, the new capsules. Uh, like I said, I think we just finished that run today. They have, and they have, um, the, the only real difference with those is they have, um, mag teen in them, which is the magnesium is magnesium L3 and eight, which crosses into the, into the brain really well. Yeah. So that, that works, um, that work that works really well. That's, uh, that so b- both the, both the drink and the capsules and everybody who's tried them, everybody who's tested them, is a hundred percent across the board say it works better, and they all taste better. So, so that new version is it's not out. So I don't have that version right now. Right, the, ver- the that I- you don't have that you don't ha- you don't have the new version out. No, but if you, I was actually just on the team call right before this call. And if it's not available online right now, it'll be on available t- online tomorrow. Um, cause we just, we just finished that. Um, and, uh, the new powder, like we still have some, some apple cinnamon drink that's still, that's still on sale. Uh, but the new version I think is about two weeks away and we're going to do some pre-sales. It's slight it, cause it's going to cost a little bit more, but, um, if anybody buys it on the pre, if anybody's already on subscription, we're just going to keep their price the same. And then if anybody buys it on the pre-sale, then we're going to, we're going to give them kind of the legacy price. I think, it, I think the price went up like four bucks or something like that, but, um, yeah, so that's where we're at with that. Um, I mean, it's nothing super fancy. It's, it's all really meant to be a supplement. That's what supplements are for. They supplement, you know, that it's not, it's not the solution. It's a supplement to the solution. Um, make sure that everybody, everything's there. I always give the metaphor that it's like I'm bringing you a bunch of lumber to the construction site and like laying it all out where it should be and then walking away. You know, I'm, it like it's not the construction crew. Like I don't have any control over what your brain does with it. We're just uh, that's your sleep hygiene component. Right. And that's your overall, you know, your overall physiological health at that point is the, how well your brain uses all of that stuff. But um, we're just making sure that it's all there. There's no deficiencies that are keeping you awake. Well, I love that so much. It's so in line with everything, <sighs> everything I think as far as like, because ideally I think we would get, you know, everything naturally, you know, from food and our environment, but everything's right. just so crazy today that <laughs> doesn't often happen. And so having this solution to address these sleep needs naturally is just with these natural, you know, these natural substrates that our brain needs to ensure sleep is just wonderful. And we do have a special offer. Thank you, Dr. Parsley, for this for our listeners. So if you go to sleepremedy.com and use the code Melanie Avalon, you will receive 10% off your sleep remedy order or an additional 10% if you choose to do a subscription. We're also going to do an Instagram giveaway. I love Instagram giveaways so much. So just go to my Instagram account. It's at Melanie Avalon. And then there will be a post there. You'll see it. Follow my account. Follow Kirk Parsley's account at Sleep Remedy. Comment your favorite sleep hack and tag a friend and you'll be entered to win a bottle of Sleep Remedy. Well, thank you so much for that. Here's my final question, I promise. And it's just because I ask every single person on this show this final question. And it's because I've realized how important gratitude is and mindset and everything. So my last question is, what is something that you're grateful for? 
Geez, there's so many things that I'm grateful for. I would have to. Um, I mean, I I would I would say that um, I'm most I'm most grateful just for my um, my general overall health and well being, so that I can do all the things that are important to me and spend time with the people that I want to spend time with and enjoy my life. And without without the health, I couldn't do it. Um, um, you know, you can always make more money. You can always make more friends and, you know, but, uh, you know, without health there, without this physical, psychological and emotional health, like that's, that's, uh, that makes, that makes the whole, the world a totally different place and an easy place. And I, I mean, and I've been in really broken places before and I'm, really glad that I'm not there anymore. So, um, yeah, just my overall health and wellness. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing for everybody else, health and wellness with your, with sleep remedy. It's absolutely amazing. And do you think, I said that was the last question, but do you think anybody can fix their sleep issues? Yeah, of course. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, everything we talked about was meant to be generalized and nuts and not for sleep disease. There, there are of course disease states around sleep where you do need help. Um, and I would again, recommend probably, I would advocate probably something very similar to you is that you do that, you know, as, as naturally as possible. Um, but you know, there are, there are, times there are times to use pharmaceuticals you know um if you if you have uh, some sort of disease that's preventing you from sleeping um but i have never i've never come across and and believe me i mean given my reputation in this field and kind of the extreme audiences that i that i deal with I've had, I mean, I'd say they have to be close to, if not the most challenging sleep clients in the world. Um, and I don't think I'm any kind of phenomenal genius. I just know I've studied this a lot and I know quite a bit of tricks. I have a lot of tools in my tool bag and I've never, I've never failed. I've never not been able to get somebody to go, go back, you know, get back to some really good quality sleep. Um, and, you know, it's probably only a handful of times that I've ever needed to use a pharmaceutical and I've never probably used it more than a month or two. So, um, I, I think it's within all of us. I mean, I mean, there's extremes, obviously. I mean, if you're, you know, if you have stage four cancer and you're in the ICU and I mean, like, yeah, you're, you have some issues that are beyond my, my scope of expertise and your sleep is, is, um, you know, unfortunately the most important thing for you and probably the thing you're most, you're least likely to get fixed anytime soon. So, um, but you know, there's a very small subset of the population that actually have sleep diseases, and a really interesting body of work that's um, growing very rapidly right now is something called chronobiology. And it's the study of psychiatric illness um, as associated uh, in its correlation to circadian rhythms. And, um, 
you know, the, some of the science there is just mind boggling. Um, it's not, it's not super mature to where, and it's not super accessible to anybody, but there's, there's layman's books on all of it. And, you know, they're taking people who have been inpatient, uh, been residents in inpatient facilities um, on antipsychotics for 30 years and with circadian realignment they're coming off of all of their medications and no, no longer carrying the diagnosis of having you know a psychiatric disease and um, I don't that's not going to be a hundred percent of them but it's it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing. I think how much we underestimate how powerful sleep is um, and how much it will fix. Uh, I mean, there's, there's literally nothing that, that fixes you faster. Like no matter what your problem is, no matter what you're suffering or struggling through, there's nothing that's going to, as far as your physiology, I mean, you, like obviously you have to go solve the problem if there's a problem, but um, as far as your physiology, your brain, and your psychiatry, your psychology, and your emotions, and all that, nothing fixes you faster than sleep. Yeah, I was gonna say. I actually remember listening to that podcast with Rob Wolf way back in the day. I remember he asked you, you know, between diet and sleep, like what was the primary factor? Yeah. And you were saying, you know, sleep is. I mean, diet is so important, but sleep is also, you know, <laughs> really, really important. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and Rob even says the same thing in his lectures. You know, he like when we were on the lecture circuit together, he would say, you know, he he kind of cut his sleep bit out of his lecture because I was always lecturing with him, and and he would say, as much as I'm passionate about nutrition, if you aren't sleeping well, none of this matters. So you have to listen to Doc Parsley as well for any of this to matter. If you're not sleeping well, it doesn't matter what I tell you to do with nutrition. Um, and if you are sleeping well, then like, let's get, let's get on with this. And this is the most, you know, this, but sleep is definitely the most important part. Um, and yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't doing that to be gracious to me. That's his, that's his honest belief system. And it's my honest belief system. And even though it started out as kind of like a, almost a sleight of hand, slightly tricky way to, um, to talk to seals about hormones, I have convinced myself over, the course of the last decade that there's nothing more important to our health than sleep. Funny how that happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for your time. I know it's valuable and I have enjoyed this conversation more than I can. It lived up to everything way two and a half hours ago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I feel good about myself. I'm, I'm going to sleep well tonight. Oh, good. There was a lot to live up to. You lived up to it 100%. Right. I appreciate it. <laughs> so thank you so much. And so again, for listeners, the show notes for this episode, the links to Sleep Remedy, everything we talked about, also all the random things I talked about using um, to support my sleep, all the, the devices and such, they will be at melanieavalon.com slash sleep. That will be the show notes for this episode. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Parsley, and hopefully I will talk to you again in the future. I feel like we could have a whole other episode, but this has been amazing. I'm sure we could. Well, we'll definitely talk again in the future. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. 
feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.